Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I always, I shouldn't say and, I should say or good or. evening. Well, or mean, it could you know. be and, I don't know. Who knows, be. right? We're probably going right. to go long enough that it will span between the <laughs> afternoon and the evening <laughs> right. for some people. You know, or anybody yeah. listening to it could be doing <laughs> true, it. You know, very true, very true. 11.30 at night, that's true. <laughs> this is the Silmarillion Film Project, in case you're wondering where you landed. And I'm Trish Lambert, one of the co-hosts, along with my uh, co my host co-host, uh, Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, and we're still minus Dave Kale, but for very good reasons. That's right. Wait, in fact, in fact, ready, ready. Oh, you got the picture. Good. Uh huh. There we go. There she is. There is the reason that Dave is not oh, with goodness. us tonight. Actually, the reason Dave's not with us tonight is because he's actually got the oldest son. Yeah. Bedtime duty. Yeah. So, but doing that's the, sort doing, of indirectly. Yeah. Right, exactly. Doing the dad thing. Look at thing. that little chunk. She is a I know, chunk. That, yeah. I mean, that is, that is, that is a plump newborn right there. Wow. When you've got that the, like amazing. the elbow folds at birth, yeah. like, you're, you're, you're handling the body weight right there. That's uh that's wow. some good stuff. Poor Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yes, Matilda Jane Kale. Yes, born on Halloween. Kids. So yeah, born on Halloween. Yeah. That's gonna, that's gonna, that'll be with her the rest of her life. Yeah, absolutely, Halloween baby. Um, so Dave said that he is committed to doing December, which is big of him because what do we have like two episodes? In <laughs> One or two, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all right. It's okay. It'll be good to have him back for for that's whenever true. we can get him. Uh, absolutely. So, yeah. You should just leave this picture up, so it's like Dave's with us. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Dave's with us during the intros here. Uh, yeah, excellent. So tonight we're returning to our script uh, again. We're gonna we're planning to talk about uh, episodes eight and nine. Uh, this is a big episode where we're talking about the Dagor Aglareb, or getting to the Dagor Aglareb tonight. Um, and uh, been looking forward to to this discussion for for several weeks now. Um, uh, as most of you probably know, there has been some difference of opinion among our team as a whole about how to handle the Dagor Aglareb. Uh, so we're going to be discussing some of those issues here tonight. Um, first, quick uh, announcements. Um, the most urgent one, of course, is Baymoot. We're having Baymoot out in uh, Berkeley, California uh, on the 23rd of November. So that is for those listening live next Saturday. That is that is Saturday week. Uh, and um, it's going to be really cool. We had, uh, you know, this is our second Baymoot. We had Baymoot last year. It was, it was a wonderful time. Uh, so really looking forward to... Um, uh, seeing folks again, uh, the registration is still open for that. I encourage people to uh, uh, to sign up if you're anywhere in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, come and join us, definitely. Um, we do. It's the la- that will be the last regional moot of 2019. We will be kicking off the 2020, uh, the very prolific 2020 regional moot season, uh, regional moot year with Tex Moot on February 8th down in Houston, uh, Texas. Uh, the Tex Moot team, this is going to be our third Tex Moot, and they've been sort of rotating it around uh, around the state of Texas. It was in Fort Worth the first year, and then down in Waco last year, and now we're down in Houston uh, this year. So that's going to be cool. And, and um, do you think it's a, do you think it would be an attraction or a, dis, a detraction if I say that I'm delivering the keynote. Well, I was going to I was going to say that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh yeah, Trish is going to be delivering the key, the keynote at Texmood. I am really excited yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I'm still uh, thinking about it, you know, because the theme is dystopia and I don't mm-hmm. tend to be 
a dystopian type person, but I've got some really good ideas. Mm -hmm. So yeah, awesome. you gotta come, you gotta come. Looking forward to fun. it. That's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mythmoot seven, of course, is coming up. Mythmoot seven for crying out loud. Wow. Um, uh, and that's going to be on the 27th through the 30th of June in 2020. Um, the registration for that actually is going to be where we are we are coming closer to opening registration, starting our early bird registration for Mythmoot 7. So that's going to be cool. Uh, and, of course, we have registration continuing continuing to be ongoing uh, for our spring 2020 classes. So you can find out more information on all of these things at SignumUniversity.org. All right. So... Um, we're, uh, again, if you want to find, uh, the scripts yourself, and again, I, I've been saying this and I'm going to carry on saying this. If you get a chance, uh, to read or even just skim over, uh, these scripts that we're doing, not only will our conversation make more sense, but, um, uh, it will be a real treat because these scripts are a lot of fun. I have had a wonderful time reading and rereading these scripts, um, I think I think I've read them all twice now, actually, that we've done so far. Um, so uh, and I, I've been really, really enjoying uh, uh, reading them and discussing them. So you can find them on the uh, Silm Film Project discussion forum at forums.signumuniversity.org uh, and then go to script season four and scripts and script outlines for season four. And you can find the text of all of our uh, of, of our scripts there. Uh, so tonight we are up to episode eight, which is bottomless dread. Of course, that phrase comes from the book of lost tales. The spell of bottomless dread is uh, uh, one of the, it's actually one of the initial concepts. So the spell of bottomless dread is first discussed in the fall of Gondolin, the old fall of Gondolin, which was, of course, one of the first um, uh, stories, one of the first of the first age stories that Tolkien wrote. Um, uh, so it's from one of the very earliest of the Middle Earth stories. And it really when you when you read it in the you know, in the older version, which, of course, now everyone can do much more conveniently in the new and the new Fall of Gondolin book that came out recently. But when you read the old book of Lost Tales version, one of the things that's really striking is that the spell of bottomless dread is like a f almost like a framing mechanism. Right. I mean, Gondolin, the, st the, the story of the Fall of Gondolin begins with Gondolin as like the one hand haven of peace remaining while uh, while Morgoth has pretty much taken over all of the rest of the land and all of the rest of like what happened there and what the progress of that was and what went into that is very vague because again he hadn't written any of it yet right um, so when he when he first writes the fall of Gondolin as I say one of the earliest of the stories um, he 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 just begins with that essential premise, right? The land is covered in darkness. And one of the key elements of that darkness that he talks about is the spell of bottomless dread, which Morgoth um, is able to cast upon uh, the elves, or many of the elves, um, uh, who are unable uh, to escape to Gondolin. Um, so we kind of resurrected the phrase uh, and to some extent the concept of the spell of bottomless dread when we were discussing uh, this season uh, earlier on um, in our discussions. And uh, uh, at, so anyway, so I'm really I'm really excited about doing that. And I think that it's uh, I, I, I think it's pretty cool. Um, and let me just say at the very beginning, before we start talking about the details uh, of episode eight. Um, that I, I really admire, I really, admi 
acknowledge that's not a strong enough word. Um, I recognize how challenging I think I, my guess and I, you know, you know, uh, you know, Rihanna and uh, Marie and Nick, who are, of course, joining us again. I meant to introduce you guys before, but I think I forgot. Anyway, uh, Marie and Nick and Rihanna are joining us again tonight. Um, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems like um, episode eight must have been really hard to write. I would have found it really hard to write. Um, yes. It, uh, I mean, it was was that super challenging? Because I think it w- must have been really challenging. The Angband centric yes, episode in particular. is maybe necessary in that we kind of do need to see what's happening with our villains, but it, it is a step away from what we've been doing with the story for the rest of the season. So this is like a unique standalone episode in many ways. Yeah. 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 It is very different in its context, you know, uh, in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Rhiannon, what are some of the things, again, just kind of speaking generally, things that you found most challenging about episode eight? I think probably the most challenging thing was figuring out how to depict the spell of Bottomstead. Mm-hmm. There was a ton of discussion about yeah. this on the forums, and lots of people had different ideas about it, and tons of people were posting like these little clips from different shows or different movies showing like what they thought it might possibly look like. Right. And right. I kind of didn't really exactly go with any of them. Right. What I did was, I don't have the book on me at the moment, but in the Book of Lost Tales, it talks about the elves who have had the spell of bottomless dread placed on them feel the burn of Orlok's eyes at every moment or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's why I wanted to show, like when you see the camera shooting through Ethelos's point of view, she sees her friends and family but they have Morgoth's eyes. Right, right. Yeah, I remember that passage from the Book of Lost Tales. I could, I could, uh, I could, I could tell. Um, I could feel like that you you were you were you were really trying to to sort of stick to that to represent that. And it's it's, but it's so hard because it's it's a it's actually a really classic example of one of those things. That's easy to say in prose, <laughs> right? But really hard to depict um, without, you know, again, just doing some kind of pro. I mean, without doing something like a voiceover or something like that, right? I mean, it's really, that's really challenging. Um, so we'll, 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 you know, dig in. Let's, you know, dig in and talk about some of these details. But anyway, I just wanted to acknowledge at the beginning um, that. Uh, this episode, I think, was 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 really challenging, especially the uh, the um, uh, the Angband bits. Okay, so we start this episode with the capture of Diriel, right? Right. So we have right. we, we we had our first captive back in episode six, right? When Ethelos is taken uh, by Tabildo, yes. and we get uh, Diriel, wife of Corfin. Uh, captured yes. at the beginning of this episode. Right. Um, and there probably were additional elves that were captured with yeah. Adelos. There are probably elves who have been captured in between those times. Um, so this is this is the first one that we're showing, the second one that we're showing. Yes. Uh, one of the tough things we're about this one were to, A, get Deriel into a place where she could get captured, mm-hmm. um, but also to have her captured in a way that somebody else knows that it's happened. Right. 
Right. Right. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, I, and that was, I could tell that there's a certain, uh, like it was some careful choreography that was going on there, right? With Celebrimbor and Dirio, uh, in the tunnels there at the beginning. Um, right. Uh, but I, I, I thought that that worked, uh, reasonably well, um, you know, was, and, you know, and was made more, poignant right by the i mean because we already had one like oradreth has already right. like found out remotely right like oh right. by the way mom was captured and she's an angband right. now right yeah. um so yeah to have well, this we, one be sort really, of more proximate they don't really know they don't really know right. exactly what happened to her she's right. gone she's captured um, yeah, yeah right or something right maybe yes. eaten for all they know yeah like yeah, yeah. they didn't find her body so right. they right. presume she was captured right um and we had already done the whole, like the sep- the way that we separated Angrod and Enelas, right? We couldn't do that again exactly like that. We had to find a way to have this group out there, but have people get separated off in a in a different way. Yeah. Um, so we weren't leaning on the same thing twice. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I thought that the capture of Diriel, uh worked uh, worked pretty well. And by the way. I, I see you were talking about needing a like an occasion or like circumstances under which they were um, they were captured. Um, I liked that the, you know, they were they were on a mining expedition. Right. And they were captured there, which is uh, which is nice, uh, nicely uh, foreshadowing Mygwen. Right. Which is cool. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I, I liked the uh, the foreshadowing of Mygwen's capture. I thought right. that was neat. Um, and then we had to get. Um, in order to get the ban and the reaction to the ban, right, we had to now be telling this additional story, right? We right. have to be telling that that story of what happens when uh, when that news gets out, right? And so we felt that Oradreth, being somebody that we could put together with Celebrimbor, it, because of their shared experience would be somebody that could have been sent as a messenger to Mytheros to let him know about the ban. Um, and he happens to arrive at the, at the same time that Celebrimbor is bringing back news um, of his mother's capture or, or apparent capture. Right. And what I, what I also really liked about that is you can see Oradreth's like private motive, right? Um, you know, he's... <laughs> He's he's volunteered to come and care and convey. I mean, clearly among many of the Noldor, right? The job of telling the sons of Feanor about the ban by Thingol, right, <laughs> would probably not have a. People wouldn't be queuing up for that job, you yeah. would think, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but Oradreth jumps at it because he wants to go to talk to Mother. Like, so let's right. talk about escaped captives from Angband, Mithros. Right? right. I want a first-hand yeah. view of this, and uh, right. if anyone can help and, me, you could. Right. And so I, I thought right. that was great. Yeah, and if somebody could, and if he could conceivably talk somebody into an into like a rescue op, right? Like who better? Like the Feanorians are have got to be like first up for that, right? And and Mithros in particular, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, and by the way, uh, uh, Rhiannon was the was the on the one hand and on the other hand thing. Your idea was that? Was oh that yes. You? Oh, I loved that. That was hilarious. <laughs> I loved that when 
Uh, you know, uh, so so for those of you who didn't read it yet, so uh, Myros is is saying, you know, like on the one hand, like on the one hand, I did get, you know, he, and he he holds out his left hand, and he's like, on the one hand, I did get rescued, and then he's like, and on the other hand, and he holds out his stump. <laughs> it was fantastic. I loved it. I loved yeah. it. Um, yeah, it's not quite a if, if it's what passes for a joke for Myros. I yeah, think. yeah, because it's not really a joke. No, but it's like, <laughs> but it's like gallows humor, right? I mean, yes, yeah, and. And that seems that seems perfectly fair um, uh, from him. Yeah, it's you know it's not like he was making light of his condition, but right. you know, it, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I but I, thought I, that was I don't think that Mythros is above using his missing hand to make people feel uncomfortable. No, no, and and yet also not like necessarily <clears throat> taking like himself completely seriously all the time you know i mean like it's it's you know he doesn't have to be just totally grim all the time i thought that was i thought that was fun i mean he's not going to be like a jokester right i mean he's not you know we, we don't want to obviously we couldn't push him too far in that direction um right but but for a feanorian he has enough humility to actually make himself yes a joke yeah in a small minor way he still has the pride of the feanorians absolutely but Absolutely. Not to the same level as his brothers. Because I agree, you know, that like, yes, it's easy to talk about, you know, his like intensity and his desire for revenge and his hatred of Morgoth and everything that have been intensified by his experience. Um, But I agree with you, Marie. I think that higher than average humility for a Feanorian is likely to be um, in Mithros, one of the consequences of... um, um, of of his captivity, um, or, or, or anyway, that seems to me a very plausible one, especially given that we see Mythros is. I mean, Mythros is going to the kind of insights that Mythros is going to have before his death. You know, in his like the kinds of things that he's going to be saying by the very end. Um, show that he has gone much further down the path of humility than like Kelegorm and Kurufin do, for instance, right? Right. Um, speaking of, of pride and humility, we also get um, a, to revisit the Gothmog-Sauron um, rivalry yes. in this episode. Yes. Uh, because we, we want to make sure that we remind people that that's still a thing, that they, you know, that the forces of evil are not this kind of unified homogenous um yes group yes. and that like by definition like being the bad guys that means they don't play well together right i mean that i mean un- like unless your will is enslaved by your master like you know you're you're not like cooperative like it's not they're not a fun team bound together by mutual affection and desire to cooperate um so yeah, no, absolutely. That I, I think that that was uh, that that was good, and um, you know, providing the opportunity. We, it, it was Morgoth's return from the east, right? Certainly provides a, a good opportunity to again sort of spotlight the the difference between Gothmog and um, uh, and and Sauron uh, and their different methods. Um, Gothmog is able to get in a few digs. Uh, at right. Sauron's expense, um, but it seems quite clear, and you know that Morgoth is going to get what Sauron is doing. You know, right? right. Um, um, 
And, value and um, I, I'll, I'll tell you one, one thing on this, and that's that it sure would be a shame if there winds up not being any payoff to the rivalry bef- between Sauron and Gothma. I'm just going to plant that seed there. Anyway. <laughs> I wonder what that would look like. I, I have a plan, but we can talk thought, about that on another scene. I thought scene. you might. I thought you might. Uh, um, yeah. But we all know how Gothmog dies. We yes. can work out if Sauron has something to do with that. Right. Right. Um, so additionally, we also needed to show what the norm is for the prisoners, like what their their life looks like, you know. Um, so we had to kind of visit General Pop in Angban, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um to see how these people are living. You get like a little confrontation between Edelas and Diriel because Edelas can't really trust anybody at right. this point. Right. Right. You know? Right. And that, by the way, seemed to me, a re- uh, the, the, the contrast um, between Diriel and Ethelos was really interesting. You know, um, it was a, a really good way to be able to emphasize what has been done to Ethelos already, right? Because um, she's the yeah her, her reactions, uh, the contrast with you know having having the two of them, the two of them were a really good kind of counterpoint to each other. Right there, right, and um, Diriel is is certainly more pragmatic in a way. And and that was one of the things that we wanted to do was not to make her choice to go along to serve them, her captors willingly. Right. Not to, right. not to have that be a choice merely based in cowardice. Right. Absolutely. But what a pragmatism, pragmatism, because she certainly can't accomplish anything if she's been spell of bottomless dreaded, you know? Right. Right. Um, Yes. Yes. Um, it, it makes me think of, and I kind of, when we were discussing, I kind of brought up, um, like, in prisoner of war camps in Germany, um, you know, the British or American officers, the, the, the one who was go- the highest ranking would generally be in charge of the prisoners. And we, we would act as liaison between the prisoners and the Germans. Mm-hmm. And by default that that meant because they were going to have a lot of contact with the Germans, that meant that they couldn't be involved in any escape attempts. Now, I don't know if have you ever seen the great escape? I haven't. Film of the sixties. Oh man, it's I amazing. Yeah, you, you, yeah. It's like one of the best yeah, films did, about yeah. world war two ever made in my opinion. Anyway. <clears throat> um, but they can't be involved in the escape attempt really because they're a liability. You know, because they're going to be in, and they have to be able to honestly speak to the Germans and treat with them in a way, mm-hmm. right? They have to have that kind of relationship with them, but in a way that kind of makes them collaborators, right? Right. You know, yeah, and that's that's kind of what happens here. And it, there's also um, Alec Guinness's uh, character in the Bridge Over the River Kwai. It's a very, very similar sort of situation. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the situation that Diriel finds herself in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, by the way, one um, I had a, and I, I there's probably not going to be an awesome time to bring it up. Um, so I'll just bring it up now. Uh, Morgoth wearing the Silmarils and the impact of the Silmarils. Um, 
uh, Rihanna and I loved this, the description uh, of Morgoth's return, right? How the first thing you see, like the way that we know that Morgoth is back is the light of the Silmarils entering the room, right? And shining on like everybody's faces. And then, uh, uh, and then, you know, then you see Morgoth coming in. Um, One of the things that that made me think, and I don't know if there's a way that we can integrate this exactly or anything, but it, it made me really think back to all the discussions we had back in season one about Melkor and his motivations and why he was doing what he was doing and the choices that we made back in season one, which were in particular, like we did not want him just to be, you know, a completely you know, terrorizing bad guy from the moment he comes. We wanted to dramatize his fall because we, I mean, according to Tolkien, Melkor does have a fall. It just mostly happens off screen. You know, Um, he's kind of already fallen by the time we meet him. And certainly he's already fallen by the time he, and is like known to be fallen by the time he gets to Middle Earth. So, um, you know, we, changed the dynamics of that so as to emphasize his fall. And I was remembering, of course, in those discussions that we had, and it was one of my favorite elements of our of our discussions back in season one, um, when we were thinking about the reasons for his fall, like why does he do what he does? You know, what, 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 what are some of the things that characterize that? And one of the things that we were talking about was his, his desire for light and his feeling, you know, his, 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 his relationship with light um, and uh, how he sort of felt like light in general, right. Belonged to him was his, uh, uh, was his domain, which is one of the reasons why he wanted to kind of acquire Varda as well. Right. Um, And she turns him down. Um, anyway, so I was thinking about all that. And of course, we, by this point, right, we've already talked about, I mean, Morgoth has passed his point of no return, right? And we discussed that, you know, way back in season two, right? With the darkening of Eleanor. Um But um, we have... We've had few opportunities in the last two seasons, in seasons three and four, to kind of show any remnant of his old viewpoint, right? Um, I mean, there's an extent to which we've been willing to have Morgoth, like, now, okay, now he's just like... All right, I'm just mad and I'm going to smash everything as much as I can because, like, I'm I'm going to rule everything and that which I can't rule I will destroy. Um, which okay, like you know we can kind of see how he gets there, but um, but we've almost like from a moral standpoint, right, or like even from like a self-image standpoint, we've almost had him like flatten out. You know what I mean? Partly that's because he's not been our protagonist. I mean, we we Morgoth has had very little screen time over the last couple seasons, which is what has happened, right? I mean, that's natural um, because the attention has been shifting away from him and he is now merely the antagonist most of the time. Anyway, all of this is just to set up the fact that, Rihanna, your description of the light of the Silmarils was really kind of reminding me... Um, here I'd been one of the things that I'd been kind of thinking in the back of my mind is like, man, we've sort of made Morgoth just sort of content to be the Lord of Darkness, you know, Mister like all light belongs to me, and now he's like Mister Lord of Darkness. Like, 
we'd, and we didn't really show how he got there, but reading your description of his entry or his re-entry rather into Angband upon his return, um, it sort of struck me. It's not going to look like that to him. Right. I mean, one of the consequences of going around with the Silmarils on your forehead, right, is that you're never going to be in darkness. He probably doesn't right. think of himself as the Lord of Darkness at all. Right. He right. probably is still convinced that he is continuous, like that he is the Lord of Light, uh, yes. you know, constantly surrounded yeah. by his radiant glory all the time. Um and doesn't even like, and because the Silmarils are always shining out from his brow, he doesn't see the, like, he never sees the shadow behind him, right? He never sees yeah. the, like, the whole of Angband is probably very dark, right? Because, like, why, when you've got, again, when you're walking around with the Silmarils on your head, you're not going to, like, flick on a lot of other lights when you're walking down the hall, right? You right. don't need yeah. it, right? So, uh, just the idea that, you know, the, the kind of both the idea, sort of the concept of the fact that the fact that he is almost completely surrounded by darkness is it can be a, like a direct consequence of the fact right. that he sees himself like all he sees is light and still probably believes that. Yeah. As I say, I don't know. I mean, so my observation here isn't necessarily practical. I don't know, you know, that we make this come up exactly. But, you know, I wonder if there's some illusion that like, something that he could say at some point, which would kind of betray the fact that he doesn't see himself as dwelling in darkness because he doesn't dwell in darkness ever. What if darkness. what if when the men come, they talk about their fear of the Lord of light. Right. Cause remember that like one of the ways that he convinced them to worship him was by turning off the sun and turning it back on again. Right. And not only that, but he was the only radiant thing in the darkness. Right. Right. Yeah. So exactly. if the men think of Morgoth as the, as the self-styled Lord of light, yes, they, they might recognize that he's not actually the Lord of light, but they know that he calls himself that. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that's that how would they be a good opportunity. Him. Yeah. 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 So um, we, we got to keep that in mind for season five. Um, does this speaking... actually have to happen pretty early in the meeting with Min? Because we do have Andreth calling him the shadow and referring to him as like darkness and nameless. Yes. But see, so... she, she has gained wisdom, right? Right. And exactly. so now, like, you know, yeah. actually, this tyrant up in Angband. Exactly. Right. And... Think of the Lord of Light, that the first men who arrive. Exactly. She she right. sees through it, but it would be but 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 yes, exactly the the whole, um, yeah 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 no exactly it, it's it's a it's a sign of her own wisdom and her own insight uh, and her own I don't know what education essentially uh, that she she sees through that she she acknowledges him as the Lord yeah. of Darkness even he and doesn't get that fully. And we can have this come out like very, very early, mm -hmm. like Absolutely. when the when Finrod's like actually talking to the men for the yeah. first time. And so, in the context of the first debates, you know, with the and you know, like in, in the camp and the, uh, you know, the the right. the mysterious, uh, uh, you know, dude who sh shows up and makes the argument. I mean, the, the, yeah. there's going to be lots of discussion there, right. uh, In yes. that context, and that would be the time yeah. to do it. Now, speaking of of. Um, light and darkness and debates uh we debated for quite a long time 
on how to arrange this like attempted escape on the part of the slaves. Yes. Yes. It was like it was very, very difficult because it we had to find difficult. something that would be believable for them to start doing at this point that they couldn't have done before. And so we decided on um having on styling the the place where these people are kept as pits rather than cells. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Because cells pose a whole host of problems. It's really hard to have like eight to 12 foot tall people communicating or, or in the same shots as these people, if they're in cells, like the whole thing's a mess. Yes. And, and that, I mean, and there's something, okay. So one of the challenges, I think one of the challenges here is like, how do you, I mean, these are these are Noldor, right? These are like third generation Noldor that we're talking about, you know, and you don't want them like chipping away at their cell floors with a spoon, you know? I mean, it's right. Like it, it it can't look too Alcatraz, right? Right. Yes. Um, But at the same time, you got to do something. What, what are you going to do? Right. We also, once we had the pits, um, we couldn't have Sauron or worse Morgoth, like climbing up and down ladders into these pits because that's that's not threatening, right? Yeah, like that's not scary. Yeah. So, like to have Sauron just kind of like drop down, like superhero landing into the middle of these pits. Yeah, I was sort of imagining Sauron up. falling at like slower than gravitational yes. rate. Oh like, yeah, I'm sure. You know, like, yeah, like sort of swooping <laughs> yeah. down. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. He, he does kind of like a neo landing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, or even like a kind of a, like a like a Batman descent. I'm thinking, you know, with like yes. a cape kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Probably not quite so explicit, but yes, I, yeah, I exactly not quite so. Explicit. I'm, I'm just saying the the genre yeah. of descent. I was thinking. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and having him like physically grab and toss Edelus out of the out of the pit onto the floor, and we had like discussion. Like, is he strong enough to just? do that well yeah sure why not like that's fine you know it's only you know 110 pounds whatever you know 20 feet in the air no big deal yeah and he doesn't actually toss at all she stays down in the pit because she has to like take the tool that they're using to escape off of Uriel and reveal the whole escape plan that the Noldor were working on yeah okay I mean I don't have a problem with her climbing down the ladder but I mean that's fine um anyway the one of the yeah the, but you see why there are so many like really fiddly things that need to be worked out there in these are, circumstances to I mean, w- to make it work one of the things that i found myself wondering um when i was reading this episode was is there is there a way by which we could it seemed like the best possible option when it came to the escape plan of the Noldor would be just to like do and say as little as possible about it. Right. Like if it could be suggested and not shown, that would be optimal. I'm not saying I know how to do that because I don't. Um, but it's, I did find any time that we were like describing the details, like the car, the chipping out of handholds and the covering up of handholds in order yeah. to conceal them and things like that. It, that felt a little bit labored, but again, uh-huh. I, like it's, as you say, it's really challenging to think of circumstances in which this would all 
work. And we don't want them, you know, we, we, if they're in cells, it's different and more complicated. And we don't want them drawing up complicated plans on a chalkboard. You right. Know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the vague impression I always got, because, of course, the text gives very little in the way of detail about this kind of thing. I and mean, we do know that some Noldor escaped, in fact. Yeah. Um, that that did happen. But it, and we are going to show successful escapes soon. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, Not but necessarily it, from these pits. That they might be escaping from the forges where they're working or other places yeah. in Inland. Right. Which is the impression I always got, and specific, especially from mines right since they are right. in fact tunneling and opening up tunnels like that's, right. they're supposed to be doing that um that right. they are able to use that to their advantage and actually use the tunnels to escape um right but that seems very difficult to try to describe that and anyway they have the reveal be done very quickly yes. in that's in that setting. So what I would say is that when you're showing it on screen, it won't be, it won't seem as fiddly. I think, okay. I think when you're writing it out, it yes. seems fiddly because you have to describe in detail exactly what's happening right, so that right. whoever is making yes. the set design and the person who's shooting it, like they know what yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas when, when you see it on screen, you're going to see like people like quickly just throwing dirt on the wall or just right. quickly, you know, you're going to see shots of, and, and then you're going to see shots of eye. Right, right. So you're not going to be watching, like, for five minutes while somebody chips away at a Right, at yeah, a no, of course, of course. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. This This is one of those things where, like, I think, and we've talked about stuff like this before, where something... When you have to write it out, yeah. it looks it looks really fiddly. But I think that once it's actually happening on the screen, it's it's gonna like basically we just have to give the the audience enough information so that it's a believable scenario, right? Right. right. It does, we don't need to go into excruciating detail about how it's happening. We just have to have buy-in so that we don't have people going, "Oh, that's ridiculous! How could they possibly do that? Where'd they get the tools? How they make that right. thing?" Right. You know? right. Um, one thing to kind of get off of that for just a second that I really liked was the switch where Edelas is telling Diriel anybody could be a spy. Yes. Like anybody. It could yes. be anybody. You yes. don't have you, you don't know what it's like in here, man. Right, right. And then it turns out that it's Edelas herself right. who winds up being the tool of the enemy. And right. she told her. She warned her the whole right. time. She told her. Right. Yeah, no, that was cool. I, I did I did really like that as well. Um Yeah, 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 that was cool. Um Dariel's whole position in this thing again, the way that she I mean, she's mostly I mean, I don't want I'm not saying this to diminish her role, but she's essentially like Evelos's foil throughout this episode, right? She's like the um you know, sort of like the um the normative comparison for Edelos and, and like also Edelos is sort of the warning for her of what could happen to her. And, you know, she's because Edelos has been here longer. Um, and the audience knows Edelos. Yes. The audience barely knows Daryl at this point. Yes. I mean, she's been on screen before, but essentially this episode is the introduction for Daryl. Yes. yes. And it's the worst thing that ever happened to Edelos. So, right. Right. um, uh, to this point. So it's a, um, 
it's important to see it as an Adelos point of view story yeah. while introducing Deriel and letting the audience recognize where Adelos is based on exactly. Deriel. The, the contrast with Deriel, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that she's new and she's hopeful and she like makes plans and she believes right. her eyes and right, right, right. her child. Right. And they're also uh, House of an Orphan versus uh, married to one of the sons of Feanor. Yes. So yes. they're getting along with this to work together at the escape plan. In the end, it goes with the whole season long theme of the reconciliation of the different houses of the Noldor. Right, right. Meanwhile, their sons are on the outside trying Doing to the find same thing. them. Yeah, okay. So I kind of loved the Oradreth Celebrimbor buddy cop thing. That was really fun. <laughs> Like, we were I, hoping you might like that. I really did. I really did like that. I mean, first of all, again, I I'm a big fan of any time we're playing the long game. You know, I'm an especially big fan of the really long game of setting up scenes from the Lord of the Rings. But, um, but of course, it's it's clear what is being set up here, right? As of course, it's going to be Celebrimbor is going to be sticking with Oradreth when he separates from his father, right? You know, the, the whole Oradreth Celebrimbor thing exactly. is going to pay off huge when it's time to have, um, uh, when it's time to have, uh, 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 you know, when it's time to. Uh, I'm losing my words. That word, Celebrimbor will the, have to make a choice in Nargith Round, and when you, yeah, the word when you. Uh, when you unjustly seize the crown from somebody else. Usurp. Thank you. Usurp. Oh, man. Yeah. Like, I hate it when a word abandons me. Yes. When we get the usurpation and everything, we're going to, yeah. That is a huge I'm payoff. writing this day down right now. Huge Oradreth for, huge, huge payoff for Oradreth and Celebrimbor. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll also have Celebrimbor there when Turin comes in and, like, sort of kind of takes over. Yeah. And. Celebrimbor can be like, Oradreth, right. you shouldn't listen to these Celebrimbor awesome people who like, come yeah. to your kingdom and say they can help you. Don't yeah. trust this yeah. guy. Dude, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, again, I, and the way in which, I mean, Celebrimbor, I was going to say that Celebrimbor's presence in Nargothrond is an afterthought in the Silmarillion. That's not even true. It's a post, it's a posthumous afterthought. Uh, I mean, that sentence that one sentence in which Celebrimbor is mentioned in the text of the Silmarillion wasn't even written by Tolkien. It was written by Christopher. Like, he mentions that as one of the sentences that he included. Um, right. Because that was one of the concepts. Like, the, the character of Celebrimbor, the existence of Celebrimbor was a later idea, of course. It was a, right. it was a Lord of the Rings idea. Um, and it needs to get mapped back into the Silmarillion. But Tolkien never got around to mapping it back into the Silmarillion. So, Christopher doing what he so often does in his editing of the Silmarillion, like tries to minimize the amount of text he has to add, but he feels like I can't have there be zero references to Celebrimbor in the entire Silmarillion, right? So, uh, so you know, he, he, he puts that one sentence, like, at this time, Celebrimbor, you know, uh, uh, left his father and remained in Nargothrond. That's it. Um, so yeah, so again, it's it's uh, he's even far less than an afterthought uh, there. So being able to tell Celebrimbor's story and get ourselves you know more familiar, it's just the way in which this set up, not just that story, which is great, um, but the character of Celebrimbor, right? Beginning with the, you know giving us this initial foundation um, of of like you know life in the character of Celebrimbor right. and thinking about where how. 
how long we're going to be able to ride that train right yeah. all the way yeah. to the forging of the rings of power. So cool. Um, and thinking about the, also, the beef between Celebrimbor and Sauron, right? Right when like he, yeah. he when Celebrimbor discovers that he's been done in at the end by Sauron, remembering all the way back to. I mean, just yeah, I, I feel like the Celebrimbor stuff. I'm like, boy, this is like payoff after payoff after payoff down the road. Yeah. Um, and also, we get to use Celebrimbor to kind of rehumanize Feanor yeah. in a way. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Um, be- because now we used Celebrimbor the exact same way back in season two, episode eleven, mm-hmm. where we mm-hmm. see Feanor working with his grandson. Yes, and you get this really tender, beautiful moment between the two of them, and you get to see exactly all the amazing stuff that Feanor could have done right. if he right. wasn't such a jerk, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and Celebrimbor reminds us of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, because to him, barring one particular exceptional event, he was just grandpa. Exactly. You know, and the greatest craftsman of all time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. And and of course, he's such a wonderful. Celebrimbor is just the perfect character in whom to sort of locate the rehabilitation or partial partial rehabilitation not only of the Feanorians but of Feanor, right? Because like the sons are too close. They've sworn the oath, right? They have right. their own issues. Mithros, of course, is awesome and is 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 going to be in large part, though not one hundred percent, rehabilitated himself and already is, but um rehabilitation in Mithros is kind of a thing, <laughs> right? But anyway, um I Celebrimbor is the perfect voice to say that because if somebody like, I mean, forget Kurafin, if somebody, you know, like, well, any of the sons of Feanor were speaking up in defense of Feanor, you know, with one of the house of Feanor, no, you wouldn't buy it at all. It just sounds like, you know, contentiousness, right? Right. Or defensiveness. Or defensiveness, exactly. Yeah. But with Celebrimbor, but again, he's, he's, he is the perfect one to help the audience not just simply demonize Feanor, or at least to remember the good side too. So yeah, no, that was that was definitely another thing um, that I liked about. Or to I mean, use him as a particular plaything for a child's birthday party, for example, right. as some maybe want to <laughs> exactly, do. Exactly, exactly. Yes, those who are interested in continually beating Feanor with a stick. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, not to name any names. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm on board. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. There ya. are there are also redeeming qualities as well. <laughs> there are all kinds of justifications for it, no question. Um, but I agree. I think that this is uh, this is a really good thing. Um, the one, and this was hard. The one thing that I simultaneously liked or like really enjoyed. But was uncertain about. Um, Oridreth and Celebrimbor joke a lot. And I was like... There were moments when I was really enjoying their conversation and their kind of banter. Mm -hmm. But I was like, I'm not sure if it totally... I mean, like, both of them are, like, going to rescue their moms, probably being tortured in Angband right now. It's a little grim. You know, the occasion... I'm not saying that 
and you know, like we were saying with Mythros before, um, it's not like they have to be totally serious all the time, but they it, there was there were there were moments when it felt a little over lighthearted. Yeah, I okay. So just really quick, because I'm sure Rian wants to speak to that as well. But in a quick read of mm-hmm. the quick read of that script that I was able to give it, there were definitely things that I, I was looking at. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to come up back over this when I have a little bit more time to kind of see what I can mention to her about specific things. And I so I think I saw what you were seeing as well. It's it's hard. Like I said, I, you yeah. Know, you don't want to just go all the way, especially since, for crying out loud, the Oradreth and Celebrimbor subplot of this episode is the primary contrast, you know, is the primary alternative to the Prisoners of Ang band. Right. Plot. It's the only opportunity for light. For anything light. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's going to be a wholly grim episode if we just have the uh, the grim and suffering prisoners uh, and then we shift to the, you know, grim and suffering rescuers and then we go back to – I mean, yeah. Um, so I do, I do totally get that um, as well. But yeah, I get – there were just – um, I agree with you, Nick. I think it's probably just maybe a a, a, a light revision thing rather than a major change. Um, yeah, the scenes yeah. where Kelbimbra and Ordrest were joking, the point of that was to show them putting on a little bit of bravado because they are afraid of going to Angband, but they aren't really trying to let the others see that they're afraid. Yeah. So we, we debated for a while about what they could be joking about. We didn't really settle on anything, I don't think. Right. It's yeah. them joking in the scene I think you're talking about where they're doing funny voices and they're making fun yeah. of Morgoth. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I like parts of that. Like I like I when too. they I out too. there and they yeah. say, when we go up to his gate, he'll just tell us to get thee gone from my gate. Yeah, that was, <laughs> oh yeah, the, like the the, the, the Fano reference was brilliant. I love that. Yeah. I love that. I And, and I think that maybe... Um, like I think we could like workshop a couple of those scenes and with very very minor changes mm-hmm. I think because mm-hmm. I think the tone I think the tone that you're getting there is good I just think that there the tone of the jokes might be we we can shift that a little bit and I think it'll be spot on or even just like a sharper transition back to like the recollection of like the grimness of their mission, you know, or something, you know, mm. just something to sort of show that although they are being, you know, although they are, you know, sort of laughing together, there's some, it's, it's a little bit forced, right. You know, the, it, well, and which again is acting too. Right. Like there's, yeah. there's that. Oh, absolutely. Also. Yeah. There's also the actors being able to pull it off. You're right. Okay. So let's talk about the application of the spell of bottomless dread on other laws. Um, and the depiction of that. That's super hard. Um, first. First question. First thing I want to clarify. What are we... So, not thinking about like this necessarily from her point of view, just like describing it objectively. What are we wanting to establish as Evelos's state after the spell of bottomless, dread. what in what it what exactly is the effect of the spell of bottomless dread on Evelos? So this was difficult because sort of in between writing this episode and the discussion on this podcast, 
this treachery and stuff happens, you sort of like changed, or I, I perceive there's some kind of change in what you're expecting Ethelos to be. Mm. We thought, and I thought when I was writing this episode, that after she has a spell of bottomless dread placed on her, she's like catatonic until she has to become Morgoth's mind-controlled slave. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then... At the beginning of episode nine, you guys were like, no, we want her to be, like, healed and capable of interacting with people again. Like, there was this big Mm -hmm. switch there. Mm -hmm. So, in episode eight, what I was trying to do was show, like, her mind being taken over by Morgoth. So, she has that scene in the darkness where, like, his eyes are the dominant thing. And she gets these like little glimpses of the future. So she sees like, a little bit of fire and some scary things in there. And then, and that's something that I'll bring up. I think it's episode 10 or episode 11, but like that comes into play later right. Right. in the season. But then like she needs to be so completely bowed to his will that she'll just do anything like a puppet when he's commanding her. Yeah. yeah. Without any clue to the to the people around her that that's what's happening. Because see, so the problem there, and the reason for the at least perceived, I nothing could be likelier than me actually changing my mind between one episode and the next. But um, but even if even if I didn't, and it was just a perceived change, the I I, I honestly don't even remember. But. Um, <sighs> I suspect that the problem there, the problem that's leading me into those issues, is simply if we want, which I thought, which, which I thought that we did, and I think we do, if we want Evelos's actions to be a betrayal or like a betrayal, right? Then it can't be the catatonic version, or I mean, it, there could be some circumstances in which it could, but they would be much more difficult. They would be much more, um, our options would be much more constrained about what to do with her, to have her betray the rest of them. Yeah. Um, what, what she winds up doing in our version of episode nine would certainly be nigh impossible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she'd have to like hop up out of bed and then ambush the messenger unbeknownst to anybody. Right. And that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. he's not going to, immediately notice something's up when he sees her when, as far as he knows, she's in comatose in bed. Right. Besides which, so, but there are two things here, right? Um, There are two things which are potentially in conflict, which I think, again, some of the awkwardness here is us trying to reconcile these two things. One thing that I'm referring to is the idea that the spell of bottomless dread, right, is really like a breaking of their minds, right? This is Morgoth just just pancaking their will, right? I mean, he is absolutely destroying them. He is making them into his tool. Their wills are being just overridden. Um, so this is not a question. There's, this is not a temptation, right? This is not a, this is, this is not a corruption. Um, this is more right. of a sock puppet. <laughs> exactly. This is a hostile takeover of the mind of a victim is what this is, right? right? So there's that on the one hand. On the other hand, there's the description, very brief though it is, right, of the much more nuanced reaction. So remember when the whole, um, uh, you know, elf capture program is do like those very few sentences in the Silmarillion, when the elf capture program is described, we are given the impression that sometimes 
some of the those who escape from Angband do in fact betray those who take them back in again. Um, like right. that, that's a thing that does in fact occur, and that couldn't happen if it, I mean, like there there needs to be. I mean, and again, the the sense that I get from those sentences is that they look like they're okay. They look like they have escaped and that they are themselves, right. but they're not completely driving the bus. So, so we have to have both, right? There has to be enough of an appearance of normality for them to be taken in by their loved ones in order to be betrayed. Um, but, but there has to be that kind of genuine overriding. I don't think, I don't think that even Tolkien was suggesting there that, any of them have become like, like have been converted to Morgoth's side. That's why Mygwin's betrayal is such a big deal, right? I mean, right. Mygwin's because he he is overwhelmed too. I mean, he comes before the presence of Morgoth, and he and he is over. You know, he is not weak. You know, just weak willed, but he does betray them. He makes a choice. Mygwin makes a choice. He does right. become a collaborator and conspirator with Morgoth. Um, right. And, Morgoth doesn't just pull the information out of his brain. No. And, and he doesn't just use him as a sock puppet either. Right. So I want to retain that as a contrast. I mean, I think it's important for us to have, um, like to a lesser extent, Gorlim and to a greater extent, um, uh, uh, Mygwin, Right. Be clear exceptions to this. Like what happens to Ethelos is not like that. She doesn't do that. She doesn't choose. She doesn't become she does not betray her family and the rest of them. I mean, she does, but she doesn't choose to do it. Right. It's she has been overridden. She has been she has been um, forced. She's compelled. Um, uh, So but but again, the two things are really hard to reconcile. Is the concern. Sorry. I, I'm just trying to get my hands on what the what the concern is about the depiction. Is the concern like the way that she's acting post spell of bottomless dread? Like she's she doesn't speak at all. Is like is that part of the issue? No. Okay. Okay. So I I think part of my well not concerns confusions, uncertainties would probably be the way that I would describe it about the depiction of Ethelos post spell of bottomless dread are more about her actions in episode nine than about her, her, her actions in episode eight. And I have a, a suggestion. It's a fairly significant suggestion, but I, I don't think it need do much violence to the story as it's being composed, but I don't know what you'll think of it. My suggestion is not to depict things from her point of view. We're doing a lot of point of view camera work uh, in these uh-huh. both of these two episodes, eight and nine, especially with Ethelos. And that, on the one hand, is is potentially really cool, but it's also kind of risky. And in particular, I think it's challenging with Ethelos, especially up in episode nine, because, well, one of the things that it at least potentially confused for me was the extent to which her will is still operative point of view almost implies will freedom of will right not quite um mm. but almost does right so um 
there were moments when I was, uh, you know, reading the descriptions and trying to picture in my head what it would look like on screen. And when I was picturing it, I sort of felt like it's, it, it seems like Ethelos is choosing this. Um, you know, that she, in, in like the, the, the murder of the messenger, the, the description of the murder of the messenger made me feel that way. Um, so the, you want it to be more clear that she's possessed. I think that if we stay outside her head, like all we have to do is show her from the outside, right? Show her actions from the outside. And I think that that will help to is show. Hold, maybe. Hold I, I don't know. Real, real quick, real quick. Is the, is that scene shot from her point of view or the messenger's point of view? Because I thought it's the it messenger. Switches. It switches. Yeah. When the messenger oh. dies, you see the messenger die from the messenger's point of view, but you do see her looking okay. out and seeing Morgoth's yeah. eyes before that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, because she's all right. So the the idea of all right, the camera. So if so, what you're saying is if if that was just shot in like a standard in a more conventional way that issue kind of goes away or to me, it diminishes. Cause here's the other, here's the okay. larger issue. Um, and again, uh, Rihanna and I, I could tell, I, again, I, I, it was one of those things, uh, you know, as often happens, uh, you know, at like particularly fun moments of the Peter Jackson films, um, when like something's happening on screen and, and I can like, I can hear in my head, the line of text that they're thinking of in that scene. Right. And and that was happening to me. Like I was remembering that line about Morgoth's eyes, right. When, 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 when you were doing the Morgoth's eyes stuff, um, uh, for Edelos. And I do, I do think that that's really important and a really, uh, significant way for us to make sure that again, that people understand the, the total domination of her will by his, but, specifically having her see Morgoth's eyes in others. So there were, okay. It, I felt that it opened up the, it created the possibility that the viewer is going to think her not like possessed, but rather merely confused or deceived. Um, The impression that I kept getting was especially with the messenger. She sees Morgoth's eyes in his face and then she attacks him. Right. And so I was like, so it's, does she think she's rebelling against Morgoth? Was a question I found myself asking. Do you see what I mean? Like, so is this her own will striking out against, but, but like the problem, like the effect that Morgoth has created is, and of course the problem is that also fits with what happened with Angrod, of course, with what Sauron did to her as well. Where, yeah. where, you know, so where she's striking, you know, so her... she's striking the messenger because she thinks that he's actually Morgoth it is what you're concerned that it's saying. That's that was that was that seemed to me a very plausible reaction to the way again to that particular site. But whereas instead what is happening like when she is attacking the messenger is when she is acting most not under her own will. It's not just that she's being deceived. Right. It's not only that she's it's not that she is being missed such that she might have at that moment a a moment of realization where she's like, oh, shoot, that wasn't Morgoth after all. That was like, you know, one of my people. Um, No, like it's 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 this not like a mistake on her part of a case of mistaken identity. This is like she's not driving the bus. Um, 
one way of saying this, if anything, I maybe what sh- what we should be seeing on the screen is not her seeing Morgoth's eyes and everybody else. Maybe we, the viewers, should be seeing Morgoth's eyes in her face. I can think of a couple of horror shows that use the idea of seeing others in mm-hmm. distorted forms to show that you are yourself possessed. Um, uh, one example is The Exorcism of Emily Rose does that with yes. Emily Rose. Yes. And uh, Supernatural but, does that with yeah. Hellhounds. But it also, like Professor Olsen was saying, implies deception. Deception. Confusion. Yeah. Yes. And confusion. Um, Yeah. If, I mean, if this were animated, it would be really easy because then we could just kind of like put a, uh, a slightly less than opaque set of Morgoth's eyes, like in the background as we're looking up at Adelos who just killed this guy. Like that would be really easy. Um, it's less easy to do that in live action. Yes. Yes. Um, so if I may, what yeah. I'm trying to convey with the spell of bottomless dread that's placed on Ethelos and what I understood with this version of the spell of bottomless dread is that yeah. it is Morgoth's first attempt at it. Yes. So he does go way too hard on Ethelos and like fully dominates her mind, unlike what he's going to do later with Mygelin. Mygelin is much more in control when he yes. has a spell of bottomless dread placed on him than Ethelos is. And so what I had happen with Ethelos, and I'm probably don't convey this perfectly, but my goal is to show that she can sort of be used as a a puppet by them whenever they want to. So they can turn that off and on. Yeah. So the, and it's like partially done. So they don't have to force her to act convincingly as herself, I guess. Right. Well, they aren't. What what happens is she's like, she can go into being controlled by Morgoth mode, or she can be in normal Ethelos mode. And normal Ethelos mode is traumatized, just traumatized, broken. Anyway. Yes, exactly. Not I was just going to say that. Self yeah. ever again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She, she but doesn't. Re- but she doesn't remember that Morgoth is running, is driving the bus, as we have, as has been brought up before. Yeah. Yeah. She, she doesn't remember those times when she like is seeing people with Morgoth's eyes or seeing right. the sun as it was when it was eclipsed. Like those things I think are really, really powerful. And I kind of still want to show them from Ethelos's point of view. You know, I there are a couple I think I can definitely see a couple moments in which showing things from I the I, I totally agree about the eclipse, by the way. I thought that was really, really cool. Um so I definitely wouldn't like I, I I wouldn't want to lose all of the moments in which we're seeing things from Ethos's point of view, um, but I the mo if we are gonna if we are imagining that those moments of overriding right um, are like a complete blank to her so so that if 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 we're saying Ethos's experience is kind of like well it's like Ginny Weasley in the Chamber of Secrets more extremely right essentially yes yeah yeah in that case i think we definitely should never see things from her point of view while it's happening because that implies that she's seeing it right whereas if she's if she doesn't even remember killing the messenger right or and only like wait is she doesn't like see the messenger with morgoth's eyes the way i'm pretty sure i have that written is she kills the messenger the messenger sees her 
like about to stab him or whatever and then everything goes completely dark like she can't see anything except Morgoth's eyes are like shining above her and she's dragging the body of the messenger away yeah I mean I think if we, we can yeah also but... she has to on some level remember because she's got to confess to it too yeah and so what, what I have happening at the end of her confession to Angrod is she is fighting against Morgoth's will and so like little bits of real Ethelos are getting through even when he's trying to control her Yes. And her her confession at the end can be, should be, a triumph for her. Like, she has successfully, even if only briefly, overthrown the control of the will of Morgoth long enough for her, A, to remember even dimly the things that she has been made to do, and B, like, confess the fact that she's been made to do them. Um... You know, yeah, that 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 can be, and I think should be seen as a as a victory on her part. Um, so yeah, so we can, we don't have to have her aware of it at the time in order for her to be able to. I think we we can show. I don't think we've got to black out the screen or anything like that. Right, Again, right. My, that's why it's part of why my argument is to move away from her point of view in those moments. I'd rather not be anywhere near her point of view when she's in the grip. Right. Um, because also, I think I think it might do more to do less there. Right. If we just see it happening and the audience is not even 100 percent sure. I mean, if they're asking themselves, hang on, wait, is Ethelos driving the bus here or not? That seems to me good. That seems to me OK for them to be wondering exactly what's happening and why she's doing this. Is she a collaborator or is she being forced? Um, whereas, again, to me, doing those those moments, you know, going into her point of view in those moments feels to me like it, kind of, it confuses the issue a little bit. So I, I mean, I think sorry, we can definitely take a second look at that and see what we yeah, can... Yeah, it's hard. Like I said, all this stuff is really hard. This is really tricky stuff to try to depict. Um... There are some moments that I really like her seeing other people with Morgoth's eyes at like specific scenes where I would like to keep that. I think it doesn't need to happen as frequently as I have it written, but there are definitely places where I would really like to keep that element of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are yeah. any of those moments times when she is acting completely out of Morgoth's will? Hmm. Well, uh, one that I really like, this isn't my favorite one, but one that I really like is when it's in episode nine. So, like, I don't know if yeah, I know we're, we're kind of sliding we, into episode nine in yeah. the anyway, but that's okay. Yeah. Okay, well, it's in episode nine. It's the one where Angrod and Ignor meet up with Fingolfin and Fingen, and they're having this little war council, and they're talking about they sent the messengers at the Feanorians, but as soon as they start talking about the messenger yeah. in the Feanorian, it switches to Ethelos's point of view and everyone around her has Morgoth's eyes. So she's like freaking out, not paying attention, not hearing what they're talking about the messenger. So like, that's sort of hidden from her. It's, she doesn't realize that because she's focused on the fact that people have Morgoth's eyes. I actually liked the scenes where multiple people had Morgoth's eyes better. Like that, because mm-hmm. that to me more clearly conveyed the sense of like, she is haunted everywhere by it. It was... Uh, um yeah yeah um th- that i that scene seemed to me um but especially since we do if she is going to through her own will uh 
achieve that victory that we described. I mean, if she's going to succeed in throwing off the spell, even briefly, we want to set that up. We want to show struggle, right? We want to show yeah. her suffering from this and, and even struggling against potentially it. something she could do if, if she was for a second allowed to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's a reason why Morgoth's not letting her hear this. Right, right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that 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 scene that scene seemed uh, uh, seemed good. That seemed to me effective. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, is there anything else in episode eight that we want to talk about before we move into a more full discussion of episode nine? The one last thing. Sauron's reaction to Morgoth's spell. the parallel that we have set up, right? Um, this whole situation looks very much like the situation was, is like the orcs all over again, right? We had Sauron with his super secret orc necromant, you know, necromantic orc project, right? This, like all of this elaborate, complicated spiritual slash psychological stuff that he was doing with the elves and then Morgoth comes over at the end of season two and is just like monsters right uh, and basically like takes a, a spiritual sledgehammer and does this from Sau- compared to what Sauron was trying to do more effective in a sense but from what compared to what Sauron was doing much cruder thing right um, and the sense that I got there of one of the things is, is that we had a little, like we were opening a little bit of a rift between Sauron and, and Morgoth there, right? Like, yes, Morgoth is stronger than Sauron. Morgoth, like, effected in one swoop what Sauron had not yet succeeded in doing. But what Morgoth did was not what Sauron was trying to do. In a sense, it was almost like what he was trying to avoid doing, right? Um, and and we have seen Sauron's scorn for the orcs ever since that, right? This situation is parallel to that. Here, he's doing this elaborate thing and Gothmog doesn't get it, but Gothmog's an idiot, right? So Sauron has been doing this really ornate thing and got the, the Angrod thing, which was so awesome in episode six, right? So he's been playing these really effective mind games, which have not yet, which have borne some fruit, some excellent fruit, uh, but have not yet fully, he, you know, his, 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 his strategies are not yet fully developed. And then what does Morgoth do? He comes home and five minutes later, he's like, whammy! Right. And I, I, I do you guys see Sauron having an impulse to kind of be like, oh, yeah, there goes the boss with his sensitive touch again. Right. Um, right. I mean, do, do, do you guys see that or do you not see that? there? So- I do see the parallel. And I agree that what Sauron admires about Morgoth is his strength more than his approach. Yes. Yep. But in this case, what Sauron is seeing here is domination of wills. Right which is what Sauron wants. So this is a case where not, he doesn't just look at it and be like, oh, he ruined my project. He's like, I want to do that. Right. (laughs) What he just did, I want that. Right. It speaks directly to Sauron's end game, but Sauron's end game is that on a global scale. Right. 
Like he wants to have exactly that on every living person all the time. Or is he quite there yet? Sauron? He's I mean, not there. Maybe he's but, not okay. quite there yet. Maybe but he's definitely admiring and recognizing like a... what Morgoth just did in a way that he did not to yes. the Orc project. Yes. And it's such I a surgical tool. Earlier conversation with Morgoth. Right. Yeah. When he talks about how he and Thurin Gwethel disguised themselves as elves and they went among the elves and they deceived the elves into thinking that they were just normal elves like them, he is, in describing that to Morgoth, he's also sort of asking Morgoth, when he talks about the difficulties he's been having with the prisoners, he's saying, is there a way that we could just make these prisoners do what Thurin Gwethel and I did, where they look like elves, but they really serve us? So they're not ugly and messed up and monsters like the orcs, they're beautiful elves, but they're on our side and we can make them do whatever we want them to do. Right. This is a surgical tool. They're able to get these people completely dominated and then use them for very, very specific missions that can affect the, the war with the elves as opposed to just a hammer that's going to obliterate a bunch of people. Right. 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 Um, Yeah. Yeah. So yes, it's not surgical on the individual <laughs> right. whom it's practiced, right. Right. obviously. Right. But the grander scheme of things, right. it absolutely is surgical. In in the bigger scheme, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I'm just. Um, so and th- it's what he was get after with like the fallen elves when he like did the fallen elf thing mm-hmm, that we mm-hmm. decided he was doing in in season two. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it does that exact thing, but faster. Right. Right. Um, Yeah, I guess the two things that I'm just wanting to think about, and we can, you know, it's not a huge deal here. And obviously, if if, if anything of what I'm talking about now were to get integrated into this, it would be like two seconds of screen time, right? In mean, his facial expression or something. Um, so that's fine. Um, but the two the two things that I'm thinking about here are a where Sauron is in his trajectory. And we've talked about this. We don't want Sauron to go too fast, right? Um, We still want to make sure that we understand where on his downward descent Sauron is, right? And that I think it's important to remind people he's less far down on the descent than Morgoth is. Um, And I think it would be fun for us to find ways to show that. Um, that there is still Sauron is still to some extent believing that he is doing like the right things by efficient methods superior methods to the methods of the namby-pamby good guys um, but that he still believes himself to be doing a good thing to be achieving a good end right? not just Smashing things, not just destroying only, uh, but building, creating, um, crafting, forming, um, that his endgame should be, in his own mind, an endgame of beauty and, you know, creation, right? Um, At least that's what he still is convinced that he's doing, because, again, 
we've got a very long game to play with Sauron, and we don't want him to go too too far down that path too quickly. But the second mm-hmm. thing is the relationship between him and Morgoth. And it's connected. As I said, we want to show them at different places on that road. And I think moments where Sauron is not uncomfortable in the sense of like, you know, Sauron, you are, vi- or uh, Morgoth, you are violating my personal ethical standards. Um, you know, I have to become a conscientious objector to this super evil thing that Morgoth, I'm not that evil yet. I mean, I'm, you know, obviously it's not like that, but but that there should be some kind of divide there, potential rivalry even between Sauron I, and Morgoth. I think we tried to convey in the scene right after he sees Ethos have a spell bottomless red put on her mm-hmm. is he needs to have a look where he's like happy with it. And then he's like, wait a minute. Did Morgoth do that to me? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way I have it written is, Morgoth says, the wills of lesser creatures are easy to control. Right. Myron smiles first, then looks a little concerned. <laughs> right. Morgoth yeah. uh, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, th- I think it would like, be... Wait a minute, am I one of those lesser creatures yeah. that you're uh, controlling? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. He, he is, actually. Yeah, but exactly. I think it would be entirely appropriate for Sauron to look at least marginally uncomfortable for some period of time with the with the situation it, it gets at what he wants done right mm-hmm. and it does it in a way that is that is surgical and can be used subtly but it also indicates some things that he's not entirely comfortable with um and and kind of suggests that he might not be in as in as much control of the situation as he thinks he is yes Yes, because it's possible that he may think that Morgoth might go too far. It, it has to have occurred to Sauron that Morgoth might go too far at some point. Yeah, it, past past his you know rigorous moral standards, obviously. Right. I'm not right. sure this would be the he, case though, because this is what Sauron asked Morgoth to do. Right. Like, I, I, I'm I think not saying that. Yeah. Where thinks Morgoth goes too far, maybe with captains later on, but I think right here with Ethelos, this is exactly what Sauron wants. I I agree. I agree with that. But what I'm saying is that there might be some level in which Sauron thinks that he can handle Morgoth if Morgoth starts to go too far, that he can like sway him in some way. But I think that 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 this should show him. No, 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 no. This guy is way beyond you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that there's there like if if he did somehow exceed your standards of of capacity for evil that you're not going to be able to do anything about it right right yeah um i mean i guess the way i'm thinking about it is uh, remember we we talked again back in season 1 when we were talking about the initial conversion of myron um we were talking about the vision right he believed in morgoth's vision and right. what i'm thinking is there's going to come a point, and I think we're getting close to it, when Sauron is going to start feeling that Morgoth has lost the vision, or at least he's at risk of losing the vision, you know? Right. Um, and that there's, and, and then the point will come where Sauron feels like, I am the holder of the vision. Morgoth has lost it. I am right. the holder of the vision. Um, yes. And, I, I am the true Dark Lord. Yes. And my because I'm like the one who's really like doing the right. Yeah, he's lost his way. And my immediate theory is 
maybe that's where Sauron goes. That maybe that's why Sauron leaves the picture after Baron and Luthien. You know, maybe that's why he's no longer Mister Right Hand Henchman uh, all the time after Baron and Luthien because or after the fallen goblin, so we can pay off the goth mug Sauron compliment. Just saying. <laughs> right. Well, he's got to hang. He's got to. Well, I'm not. I mean, I'm not wanting to. Goodness knows, I'm not wanting to ship Sauron on. We've t- we've talked about this, right? We don't want to ship Sauron off and have him be off screen for five seasons, yeah. right? Yeah. Until we get until we get to. Uh, uh, you know, after the the, the 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 war, but anyway, yeah. So we'll 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 worry about that later on. Yes, um, yes, yes. And uh, we're uh, we're getting late, and we might not have time. Well, I know we won't have time for all the details of episode nine, but let's yeah. let's uh, let's let's get do into, what we can. Let's do what we okay. can and talk about some of the bigger issues. Um. So real quick before before we get into this, I feel like I feel like there's a need to address some, some things. Um. That being that, while there may be the appearance of some sort of adversarial relationship between <laughs> us and the host, there are occasionally not... differences of opinion. <laughs> right, they certainly are, There's, and we're about to run into a nest of them. Yes, but <laughs> the most important thing that it, here is that, like, it, this is really this is all in fun. Like, this is a fun project that we're all working on together. And sometimes the things that one or another of us might really, really want doesn't happen. And that's okay. And that's okay. That's okay. Yes. And I would also add that some of us, and I would say in particular you and me, Nick, also have fun disagreeing with each other. (laughs) Right. And and I think it is good to remind people that we, we, even when you and I are arguing with each other, we're largely doing it because we enjoy doing that, actually. We we are two people who have, in general, made a living of talking to people (laughs) and generally in the most persuasive persuasive way we can think of. Exactly. So that's kind of going to happen a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's there's no revolt planned. There's no like. <laughs> yes. There's, there's no, no competing projects in in mind. There's like, no oppression not... intended from it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and when we talk about like going to the mat over things, like that's really just all in fun, yes. and like nobody is actually mad. Like, well, not for very long anyway. Angry with each other. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Some people might use a lot of caps under certain circumstances. It happens. <laughs> it happens. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but it's it it's it's all in fun, and yeah. um, I think that ultimately, because I think that the outline for this episode is you know in some ways strengthened by the fact that there were constraints put on us that we weren't thrilled with and that we had to kind of work around mm-hmm. so i think that the the end product works um that said there are there are still disagreements that are that are kind of surrounding that and we can get into all those but i just wanted to kind of like throw that out there yeah no i i totally agree and i would say you know uh, corresponding to that on the other side um just as you're saying that you know p- part of the you know sort of fun of the project is that there are constraints right you know that you know you you're 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 being handed constraints and you need to and and you know you're being asked to operate within those and and you're right that's part of the that's part of the challenge part of the creative challenge um and i will also say from my perspective um it is part of the fun and delight is seeing where there are 
a bunch of things that you guys have done uh, and uh, in these episodes that I never imagined and never envisioned. And there are so many and seeing the things, seeing the directions that you guys have taken some of these things, even when they have either gone to in directions that I never anticipated or even gone in directions, you know, that I was definitely not thinking of. It, it is it is it is it is delightful uh, uh, to 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 see these things, and it's been one of the reasons why I have so much enjoyed um, the scripts this season because it's even more satisfying. It's much more. Um, it is a you know just seeing the the fuller flowering of the work that you guys are doing in the actual mm. uh, 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 you know script planning uh, stuff that you've been doing from the beginning. Uh, it just makes it the more compelling and the more interesting to see uh, from my perspective. You know, I, I just, the experience of, of reading the scripts has been fascinating because on the one hand, it's like, wow, like the story that we talked about and that I was imagining has come to life. And at the same time, I don't recognize it. You know, it's like, it's, it's not my story. I didn't write that, you know? Uh, and it's cool. Like both, ha- both sides of that are really cool and really fun. So I think that that's really great. Um, so this one was about the Dagger Aglareb. The Dagger um, Right. And so from from the onset, the the main thrust of the Dagger Aglareb was moved um, from Dorthonian over towards Minas Tirith. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of restricted to a smaller scale event rather than being kind of like this this continent-wide campaign mm-hmm. um that's described um so there there were some issues that we had to kind of wrestle with because like obviously Dorthonian is kind of more central to where most of the Noldor are um I mean obviously Minister is a lot closer to Turgon but be- we kind of eliminated him from the picture anyway so that wouldn't have right. uh, been a tremendous right. issue um also trying to get because we had to do a little math on this one to get figure out where people would be and when. Yes. Sorry about that. And, yeah. um, it, you know, and and also keep an eye on whose intelligence is telling them what mm-hmm. and when they find out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that we decided pretty early on was that the Feanorians have their own kind of forward outposts that are giving them like pretty much almost as real time as could possibly be under the circumstances information. So as Mithras is making his way towards the, towards the battlefield, he's getting updates as on route, route. right? His his guys are communicating with him to tell. So he knows that he's got to make the left turn at Albuquerque. He doesn't, he's not just blindly marching out onto Art Gallon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, this, this, uh, Marie, thank you for this map. This is such a wonderful illustration of several of the things that were discussed in the script, right? In particular, the way that this emphasizes the, the, the relative distances, right? To the Feanorians and especially to Turgon out here to sort of show, um, it, 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 it helps to, to, to really illustrate very clearly a lot of the dynamics there. Yeah, we definitely we... used the map while we were planning it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to give credit where it is due, Rihanna's the one who actually put that image together. Oh, great. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So as she I... was writing the script, she had something to refer to. Yeah. yeah. My my map was much more crude and yeah, I think has been lost to the internet <laughs> at some right. point. So 
you know, as as is one to happen, I threw something together for our discussion, but right. it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't ready for the masses, I would say. Sure. This sure. is much, much better. Yeah, I was working on a cosplay while we were doing this discussion. So what I did to make this map was I watched the discussion over again and drew the map, like sort of as Nick drew it in our discussion. So if, if you want to see this map drawn live, go watch the script <laughs> discussion. Yeah, cool. I cool. a tutorial about how to make a shield out of poster board. Right, right. <laughs> cool. Um, um, so, so, go on. Let's, since I, we're not going to have enough time to go act by act through all this now and not end yeah. talk about the bigger things. So I want to start with the bigger things. Okay. Good. Let's cause you know, uh, a, a lot of, cause I mean the bigger things are what are going to determine a lot of the smaller decisions. Along right, the way. right. 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 Okay. So the, it seems to me that the most significant point of disagreement is it, it, it starts with the con with the conception of, of the battle. Right. What is happening here? Exactly. Right. So the, what's the, Morgoth the, doing? Right. Um, so my understanding is that the way that it's written out is that that Morgoth was making trial of the Noldor, um, which to me suggests an an exploratory attack. So in um, in Israel, I know this has happened where terrorists have made like kind of minor attacks in certain areas to gauge the response time of first responders first responders right. so that they can then do bigger attacks wait until those first responders are going to be there and hit them as well with a with a second wave and this is kind of that in and in, in the way that that it reads to me yes and now here's the challenge with that um, the problem, which I can tell that you guys were perceiving, it was very plain that you were wanting to avoid this problem in the way that you were describing this. If we describe the battle exactly like that, there will be very little drama. There is almost no chance that the orcs are going to win. Right. Right. The bad, right. Uh, the bad guys are never going to be in any danger of losing. Uh, and in fact, they're not even going to take very many losses because indeed one of the whole points of the Dagor Aglareb in the text is that it proves orcs are no match for the Noldor. Right. Right. I mean, right. the orcs, like, they can line up as many orcs as they want and the Noldor are going to cut through them like, uh, like, like somebody harvesting grain is the metaphor, right? Right. Um, of how they cut down the orcs in front of them. So there is, if that is what's, and I agree. That is how the text describes it. But if we depict that, we are going mm -hmm. to have a battle with no drama. Right. So I would counter that by saying that uh, there hasn't actually been a lot of fighting between the Noldor and the Orcs before. We had the Sons of Feanor coming in in the Dagon Gilead and wiping out the Orcs when they first arrived there. But the Orcs there were not this kind of numbers that Morgoth is sending out in the Dagor Aglarab. And the Fingolfin's people and Fenarfin's people have had very little fighting with the Orcs before. So right. they see a big army of Orcs and they are freaking out because they don't really, at this moment, they don't realize their own power against these Orcs. They feel like they need to call everyone in that they possibly can because this looks like a big army and they don't realize that they can cut the orcs down like grain. 
but so there's they, the Nolder have fear, sure. and it does, in their point of view, they think that the orcs will have a chance of winning. They might. Some of them might. Anyway, Fingolfin seemed rather confident when he knocked on the gates of Angband. But, mm-hmm. and also don't forget that the Noldor are now in several times the numbers that they were when the, the Feanorians were a small force when they completely destroyed that initial. And it's true that the army of Fingolfin hasn't fought, fought yet, but A, they're kind of spoiling to, and B, they're bigger they're more numerous, so the the numbers are not actual. Anyway, but 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 in addition, all of that is kind of beside the point. It may well be that some of the Noldor are worried, but again, if what we describe is Morgoth is throwing away an orc army just to test them and see what happens, because Nick, I totally agree with you. I think that your assessment of the text is completely right there. That is what is mm-hmm. happening in the Dagor Aglareb as it's described in the text. But again. If we depict that, if we depict an uh, uh, the, the battle that you guys have described is not that, because right. th- there are moments when it looks like this army of orcs is going to defeat Fingolfin, Fingon, Angrod, Ang- Aignor, right. and Finrod put together, right? Right. Well, and that does not happen in the in the Dagor Aglareb. Yeah. In the Dagor Aglareb, they pounce on them and they destroy them all, and the orcs run away and they slaughter almost all of them. Right, it's a completely so, uneventful well, there's, there's, battle. There, well, there's a few things. When the text makes the comment that Morgoth realized that orcs alone were useless, yeah. he that's not in reference to the Dagger Aglareb. That's in reference to the attack down the coast on Nevras. Right, right, right. Which is a, which we've combined. Meant to yeah. be a small yeah. skirmish, and we've combined them here, so we do have an attack of orcs down the coast. That's just orcs. Yeah. To match the text there. Yeah. Uh, but the Dagger Aglareb, while obviously a resounding victory for the elves was not necessarily a complete no cost victory like you know there could be more nuance to the battle that wasn't described in the text so you know make it more of a battle of Minas Tirith in Return of the King and you get like changing perceptions of who's going to win the battle and then it's more interesting so if if I could just jump in real quick Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. if I were writing the battle, the way it's written in the text, the way that I would do, and we actually started setting this up back in back in an earlier episode mm-hmm. when we talked about the relatively the relative unpreparedness of Dorthonian. Mm-hmm. We've we've been kind of like leaning on that a little bit, like before we even discussed the Dagger Aquila ever, right? Um, because we were kind of preparing for that to be right. the center of the attack. Right. We were kind of setting this up, and the way that I would write it mm-hmm. is that the force would hit. Dorthonian, this big force of orcs would hit Dorthonian because they knew it was it, it was weak, drawing, and we don't know that Mithros and Fingolfin are going to to show up in time to 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 save them, Why? right? Because we're not seeing the the battle from their point of view. All right, okay. and especially if we have Angrod and Edelas here at Dorthonian, Edelas has had the whammy put on her. We can actually have, like, everything can kind of be the same, and Edelas has put a stop to the the messengers from getting out, right? And so it's so Mithros and Fingolfin's arrival to, is is actually a surprise to. Would it be? I see. W- what you actually depicted in in the script made perfect sense to me. They're not sure about Mithras because he's really far away, right? And it turns out that his vigilance is 
exceeds even their expectations of his vigilance, right? right. Um, but nevertheless, so, I mean, so that's a bit of a question mark for them. Will the Sons of Fanor even know because they're way the heck right. over there, as we see on the map? Right. It but, turns out that either us knew even before they would have sent exactly. the messenger to But him I loved the, the line when Remember when 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 was it Angrod and Ignor or Angrod and Ethelos were talking and were being like, oh, should we send warning to Fingolfin? And and the response is, like he knew at least as soon as we did, you know that that they were marching. There's absolutely no need to send a messenger to Fingolfin. And I can't imagine Angrod and 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 Ignor if the assault were on Dorthonian. I mean, clearly. Their response would be, okay, all we got to do is, like, hold them off for long enough because we know, like, Fingolfin's going to come in from one side and right. from the other, and it's going to, and, and it's, right. it's a piece of cake so long as we can just keep them off for, you know, long enough, which is, of course, right. where, where we position Finrod ultimately. Right. Unless um, there's a sleeper agent who can, like, open their gates or something absolutely. like that. Absolutely. And the, the gate opening opportunity, like a literal gate opening opportunity, right. is kind of an attractive option there for the Ethelos betrayal. I totally agree. Um, right. But, uh, this, but, but, but basically yeah. what I'm saying is that there I, I feel like there are definitely ways that it could have been done that way. Putting it at Minas Tirith does have value in that Minas Tirith is kind of like if if the attack is centered on Dorthonian, where are they going? Right. No, exactly. Again, if he's throwing away a whole bunch of orcs just to see what happens, I'm not above having Morgoth act that way. I just don't think it makes good cinema, you know, Uh, because, again, like if we have them win easily, um, it's kind of again, you guys showed that. I mean, you guys, you have a lot of like to and froing in the battle and like there are moments when it looks really, really black. Right. And that's good. I think that works really well. And so well, and and that was specifically in response to there. There was kind of the way that it's described leaves open this interpretation. And this happens a lot in the Silmarillion, where there are these pitch battles that go on for long periods of time, mm-hmm. and yet these armies don't run out of soldiers. Which right. would, like, if you had a battle going on for a week, that's absolutely what would have happened. Like, like, there's no way that that wouldn't happen. So these battles, in order to happen in this way, have to happen in stages, and so that's why that's set up that way. Right. And and I think that basically, if we had approached it from a more textual standpoint, that we would have arranged it so that that battle stage felt very similar. Yeah. Um, in a lot so of I ways. Guess like, so for me, the fundamental change, like the fundamental premise of the Dagor Aglareb that I was suggesting, like the core of my, it, my, my, you know, uh, outline of the Dagor Aglareb uh, as, as we were, de- as we were, de- you know, describing it is Let's say Morgoth actually has an objective rather than saying he's just again, because, you know, so I was choosing to deviate from the text in this way for the purposes of making this battle more significant, raising the stakes of this battle, because I felt that showing it on screen would again would be kind of boring and B would be. Um, again, it's one of those things which, I mean, how how, how long does he spend describing the Dagorab, Aglarab? Not paragraph, very long. Right? Yeah, you know? No, so, it's not long. Um, exactly. Again, it's the kind of thing you can do in one paragraph. It makes, it's fine. Again, this is not like me saying I think that part of the Silmarillion sucks. I'm just saying I think it's one paragraph in, you know, the context of the Silmarillion. Yeah. Um, and if we're going to spend the kind of time, to, anyway, so, so my suggestion is let's not do that. Let's not have it be a really easy... Uh, 
because especially since this is the climactic, this is the battle of the season, right? This is the yeah. most dramatic moment of the season in this way. So uh, the, the the most action we're ever going to have. I know we're going to get Glaurung, but still, even that's right. kind of a minor league yeah. deal compared to this, right? Yeah. So I this mean, is the big I, battle. Honestly, yeah, but, my, my attitude about this yeah. particular point mm-hmm. was not like this was not something that I felt particularly strong about the about where the battle happened. Right. Like I, it it ultimately it didn't matter. I knew that we can make that work. Yeah. The no. I think the issue stems from this. <laughs> obviously, the, the issue for me is not about the the place either, or rather, I mean, right. kind of indirectly. The issue for me is about the the purpose. Is about the object. What right. is happening right. here? And well, because once you make it a legitimate yes, once Morgoth has to... an objective, a real objective, right. not just a test. Right. Then I and I, I understand why you like that. That's where the idea of we should have Balrogs there comes from, because like, why? Why would he not send them? So why? why yeah. Why? Well, why, chivalry. Like, I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this battle <laughs> with one hand behind fair. my back because it seems so, fair. I mean, so I can I can tell you I can tell you. So why don't we real quick get any of the hyperbole off the table? That being that neither of us think that Balrogs are either invincible or fragile. I would say that, that nobody thinks that any of those things. Right. Well, before Correct. we talk about the Balrogs, though, can I say one thing about yeah. the location real sure. quick? Sure. So what I noticed in the text is that the Dagger Aglarab the way it begins as a thrust against Dorthonian, and then they break through both the Pass of Syrian and Magra's Gap, is right. basically what happens in the Dagger Bradalach, just less effective. So Morgoth's attacking pattern is the exact same as what he's going to do later in the Dagger Bradalach. He's just yeah. testing it, making and trial with that's his orcs. Why I wanted to change the location. <laughs> Because I don't want it to look exactly the same both times, except this time with fire. Like, I mean, yeah, exactly. That's exactly that was that was the number one thing that I was wanting to avoid is that like it, that this would be a more limited because it looks like I don't want well, to make Morgoth look dumb. That you need to capture in Valerian if you want to take over Southern Valerian from the north, yep. and that is. The Pass of Syrian and Maglo's Gaps so you Absolutely. can get through. Because you can send armies across Rothonian, but it's a highland, it's mountains. You're going to have to get your armies up onto the highland and then down into the rest of Beleriand. So that the and most then hope that the spiders don't eat them the Pass of Syrian and Maglo's Gap. Absolutely. But you also, you don't want Angren and Agnor to, like, split off and go defend those areas. You want to keep them focused and fighting somewhere. So you attack Dorthonian and then get everyone to come fight in Dorthonian and then try to break through in the two strategic locations that you need to capture Southern Valeriant. I think that, I think, so I think two things. I totally, absolutely. I mean, that's why, and I thought that you guys did a really good job of explaining and setting up the, um, the strategic value of, um, of, the pass the the pass of Syrian and uh, and end of uh, you know of 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 Minas Tirith in particular, um, because yeah so I mean and therefore Minas Tirith is a brilliant I mean is an is is an excellent limited objective for Morgoth to be trying to obtain but here's the other thing, uh, Gothmog, right, we set up. We reminded everybody of the rivalry between Gothmog and Sauron. Uh, 
if the Dagor Aglareb is going to be a failure from Sauron's perspective, or from, sorry, from Morgoth's perspective, and frankly, I mean, it's going to be a big victory by the elves. So from Morgoth's perspective, it's either, Nick, as you were saying first, like he's not really trying to win, so it's no big deal. He, like, it, he's playing a longer game, right? So he was just, you know, this is like, the elves feel good about themselves, but whatever, he doesn't care. His ends have been served, right? If we're not going to play it that way, and I don't want to play it that way, um, if we want him to actually be attempting to achieve an objective, the Dagor Aglareb is going to be an utter and embarrassing and humiliating failure for the bad guys. Whom do we want that humiliation to fall on? Me? I don't want it to be Morgoth. I don't want Morgoth to look like an idiot. I want to make Gothmog my patsy for that. Right? Gothmog I'm willing to make look like an idiot, because we've kind of said that Gothmog is an idiot. Right? So if Gothmog is the one who is like, no, uh, let's do this. Right? Sauron is doing his, like, ornate, complicated, and useless things with these elvish prisoners, as you guys had that set up. Right? If Gothmog is the one taking the lead and be like, you know, give me a bunch of orcs and we're going to charge out and, you know, Sauron keeps needling me about how useless the orcs are and everything and whatever. Uh, but uh, but I'm going to do this. So if 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 the Dagor Aglareb is a failure for the bad guys, which it is, I'd want it to be Gothmog's failure, not Sauron's failure. Or sorry, so, not Morgoth's failure. Rather. Yeah, not no, Morgoth's I, failure. I, yeah, um, no, I would say instead of having it be either Gothmog's failure or Morgoth's failure, let's make it Sauron's failure. Because what has happened why? is Morgoth went away in episode two, and he sort of said whoever is the best should be the one in charge of Angband while I'm gone. See, he comes back and yeah. he sees what Gothmog has done, and he sees Nothing. what Sauron has done, and he is most impressed by what Sauron has done. Right. And so he. So why should Sauron? Why should why should Sauron? A why? So two two problems there. First, why should Sauron? I'd be, like Sauron should come out of this season looking good. Why doesn't he? Why can't we have him coming out of the season looking good? Why should any of the failure of this attached to him? And besides which, this attack is totally out of character for Sauron. Yeah, this is exactly I, I would, the kind of thing I would he's not done. That. I, this how, is a Gothmog okay. so move. Let, like, let me take so, a bunch of people and charge down. Effort between Gothmog and Sauron. If we want to have Sauron commanding the orcs, however, I don't want him to be Sauron the is using. Ethelos, he's using his prisoners that he's like intentionally had get rescued in order to further divide the Noldor. Yeah. So he is very much trying to achieve the strategic objective in order to help get the orc armies to achieve their goal. But, but it does fail. Also, in, but it fails. It fails badly, and he's not. He's but he's not about the orc armies. He doesn't even care. He doesn't even like the orc armies. He speaks derisively. Which of the orc is why he doesn't care about using them to make trial of the strength of his enemies. He can have as many orcs why killed it as he wants. Why should be his strategy? What's Gothmog on the doing? Driving What's them apart. What's Gothmog's job? What's his role? What is he doing? What's he been doing with himself? We know what Sauron's been doing. Sauron's been doing interesting things and accomplishing accomplishments, right? What's Gothmog been doing? Gothmog's been getting orcs to survive sunlight okay by okay ineffectively ineffectively yeah well Largely. well now that there's a cloud cover which was not his which was not of his 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 doing necessarily but anyway no. okay that's fine but mm-hmm. seriously that's it so 
where do, what what on earth leg does Gothmog have to stand on in making fun of how little Sauron has accomplished if he's done literally nothing and never does anything? I mean, he ceases even to be an antagonist to Sauron if he doesn't ever take the lead, if he never has a plan. And again, oh. if there's any plan well, what in season four is that, that has Gothmog's name on it, it's prisoners and stuff that he does with them is ineffective, and his attempts with the orcs are going to be much more effective than what Sauron is doing. So he believes that what he is doing is more of an accomplishment. Morgoth and Sauron don't see what he's doing as an accomplishment, even though he does. Well, okay, it's not. I can, mean, he hasn't I, really accomplished anything, right? Can I slow this well, down? For that's not enough to realize that. <laughs> okay, I mean, it, yeah. I guess. Okay. I guess. I don't know. Right. I, I'm not so willing to make him quite that stupid, perhaps. But I don't know. I mean, you know, he, sorry. Nick, go ahead. So here's the thing. Yeah. If Gothmog, if if the attack is Gothmog's idea. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Let's let's say that we do that. Okay. Okay. We have definitely shown Gothmog leading soldiers while not actually being on, like active in the battle and on the front lines in the past. Now, if we're putting this on Gothmog, it's not unreasonable to have him leading from behind so that we never actually see him on the battlefield so nobody has to die. And Gothmog is not in any, is not himself in harm's way as a battleship would be piercing a, a fleet of destroyers. Even though a battleship is easily able to, to destroy a probably a hefty number of destroyers they send battleships out with supporting fleets for a reason sure <laughs> you know and i but, think that okay so first of all he's not the only balrog right right yeah he's invested in this victory and again if you are sending out your army to achieve a real objective like with the intention of winning right and you take your you leave it yes you escort your battleships, but you don't leave them behind. They are in the battle still, right? They, they accompanied. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. isn't just send a troop of Balrogs. Um, you know, so are you concerned about having Balrogs only be in the second wave and not in the first wave? I'm concerned about, again, I don't want the battle to seem. So there are several, there, there, there are several consequences to leaving the Balrogs out of this battle. Again, if we are going to say they're trying to win, I, I, I see no explanation. I mean, if I were watching this show, I would be like on internet chat uh, 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 sites immediately afterwards saying, that right. was so stupid. Why didn't the Balrogs fight? You know, um, just like, I mean, one of my chief complaints, you know, I, I didn't share a lot of people's complaints about the final seasons of Game mm -hmm. of Thrones, but yeah. one of my chief complaints was like, hey, like, I thought the Unsullied were the greatest warriors ever, and now they're like getting beaten one-on-one -on -one by schmoes on the battlefield. What the heck? Like, why are we sandbagging this army that we spent so long building up, <laughs> right? Um, and, on, and that's the same reaction I would would have if especially I mean so you know Gothmog or anyone is like okay we're gonna have this battle I'm gonna charge in but like we have this one weapon you know we have these like super heavy infantry troops which are completely devastating we know the orcs um, get toasted by the Noldor but we know that the Balrogs can take out a whole bunch so yeah but no let's leave them behind for reasons right like it's it's it does that I would I would I would have a serious problem with that it just doesn't to me it makes 
it seems either too contrived or it makes the bad guys look stupid um and 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 and, and less of a threat therefore and also I, I, it deprives the good guy's victory of some of its glory, I think, if they're only beating the, you know, the, 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 the B squad of the, of the bad guys, you know, if, if, they're, if, if, if they're not playing against the A team. Um, the second. Well, what they are playing against is Sauron's forces. So they are fighting vampires and they are fighting werewolves and they are fighting trolls and. They might even be fighting Sauron himself. And so if we play on the rivalry between Sauron and Gothmog, and we say that Morgoth saw what Sauron was doing as the best, and it was kind of like, Gothmog, Sauron knows what he's doing. He should be the one to use these orcs however he wants to do. And so what Sauron does is he makes trial of his enemy's strength, and he sends out this big wave of orcs. He doesn't send the Balrogs out because he doesn't get along with the Balrogs, and he can't command the Balrogs. Even if Morgoth says to Gothmog, you're under Sauron's command, Gothmog probably isn't going to do what Sauron wants, so Sauron is going to do everything he can to keep Gothmog and all his Balrogs back in Angband, out of his way so he can get the battle done as he wants it to be done. But that's I, only- I can tell you, I'm definitely more concerned about Sauron's safety on the battlefield than I am the, the Balrogs. That's Me too. And definitely. I'm slightly confused as to Sauron's motivations and all of that. Me, I'm yeah. more than slightly confused about that. Yeah, I mean, but, this seems to me a, a, uh, a, a sharp departure from Sauron's character and his motives and his intentions and plans that we've built up all through the season. Okay, to this point, the, the orc armies are commanded by uh, Bulldog. Bulldog. Bulldog directly, right, right, right. Yeah, he moves orcs around. Right. And then Bulldog answers to Gothmog. Yes. Like, that is the chain of command that we have set up, and we're probably not going to change it. Now, Theron Gwethel, Drogluin, and Tavildo all answer to Sauron. Yes. And that's his guys. He's got so, all the, like, irregular troops. He's got the werewolves, yes. he's got the vampires, he's got the cats. Absolutely. Special exactly. Teams. So if you have an army of orcs, it's not answering to Sauron, and it is answering to Gothmog, unless there's something very unusual going on that we would have to explain exactly. and set up. And we're not going to show Angband at all in this episode, really, because the whole point is the elves reacting to this darkness showing up and these armies coming out of the darkness. Oh yeah, the entire episode's in darkness. And if, again. And if... <laughs> hooray! <laughs> More darkness. And if we... If we don't, if Gothmog is not acting here, he will never act in this whole season. And therefore, we don't any longer have a functional rivalry between Sauron and Gothmog. Because Gothmog's not doing anything. Not a, I mean, again, not, not on screen. He's playing no part of the plot of the entire season. You see what I mean? Um, but well, we, but if this is him, if this is not Sauron, if this is him, and besides, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like Sauron. This is not how Sauron acts. Um, at least not how we've shown him acting all the way through. Even even back in season three, when we had the attack on Beleriand, um, Sauron was running this much more clever campaign, which involved like making treaties with Shelob and the spiders and stuff like that. Um, whereas Bulldog was just leading the orcs down in their invasion, which which you know had a devastating effect on the Green Elves. Um, but uh, but anyway, it's st- still it's it's. Uh, we had Bulldog smashing his way down, right? And succeeding in smashing uh, uh, a lot of the green elves. Um, but Sa- again, that was, but that was not Sauron. And that was never really Sauron's gig. 
And it's become less of his gig. I mean, he's defined himself in part, and that rivalry with Gothmog is defined in part by his distancing himself from the orcs. And he's making fun of the orcs. He doesn't command them. And he wouldn't do this. This isn't how he would act. He's, He's got his plan. His plan is a subtle, devious plan. His plan is he's going to bring down, he's yeah. working to bring down the Noldor from within, right? Yeah. It's going to be yeah. Bulldog who's going to be like, and just like he was saying to Sauron about Ethelos, right? Ah, just break her, right? Whatever, you're wasting your time. Just do it like this. Get a hammer and do it like this, right? And that's what this battle is. Like, I mean, like the Black Arrow is the hammer, that Gothmog is going to bring in to try to smash uh, the 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 Noldor, and I think that Morgoth lets him do it because there's a non-zero chance of success. He could he might win, or if winning right. is defined as seizing, you know, I don't know, like maybe seizing Minas Tirith and making it into an island of of horror, right? Um, right there in the middle of Beleriand, and 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 creating this potential open access to the to the rest. I mean, there's a real objective that might be attained by Gothmog and his hammer, right? Um, but so that makes sense to me. that one island would be more of a Sauron objective because one, that's what he does later. And also it's a smaller, more strategic thing, which I think would be the kind of thing he would want to do. He wouldn't want to push all the elves. So if, if this is going to be an attack on Minas Tirith, then a smaller directed attack would be much more Sauron style than attacking all of Dorthonian, which would be Gothmog style, like we see in the Dagger Bragalock. But his style... Also, Sauron's... The fact that he doesn't usually command the orcs could help explain why the orcs don't do so well. So if Morgoth has told Uh, Sauron, you need to attack, or Sauron has gone to Morgoth and said, I want to capture Minas Tirith, and Morgoth has said, sure, here's an army, and just takes Gothmog's army and pretty much gives it to Sauron then Sauron will not be used to commanding the orcs. The orcs won't really be answering to him. Like they, they kind of have to because they're like slaves and they have to do what Morgoth says. But because their loyalties lie more with Bolog and with Gothmog and like with their individual commanders rather than with the main figurehead, which is Sauron, then that could explain why they are less effective in this battle than they will be in the Dragon Bragalock when they're being commanded by Gothmog, who is supposed I- to be in command of them. I, I don't know if suggesting like military ineptitude on Sauron's part is necessarily like honestly I'm fine with Gothmog commanding the you know it does seem to me more like with Gothmog having Gothmog commanding the defeat yeah but yeah however I do think that with like even the way that it's the battle is written you know that it, it, using that. Mm-hmm. Right, that template. Mm-hmm. Um, Fingolfin and like it can still look like Fingolfin and his people are going to get overwhelmed by these tremendous numbers of extremely well equipped orcs against a relatively un- inexperienced group of even the Calaquani who are yes are slaughtering them wholesale. But there's just so many of them. Like it's it's like fighting zombies, right? Like there's just so many of them. They just keep piling up, and you kill them, and they're just climbing the mountains of dead orcs to get to you still. Mm-hmm. Right? That can work. I, I, that, I the still would think have to that be real huge. But yeah. I, I I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I I definitely think that like having Sauron commit it would require explanation. Like we'd have to go back into Angband 
and have those scenes where we're explaining what he's even doing out there. I think that having him in command there would definitely be confusing to the audience. And in doing that, we utterly emasculate Gothmog. I mean, he's been demoted functionally. I mean, Morgoth right. has agreed to giving his me. army to Sauron. Which like, someday is going to happen. But then when Sauron is defeated, when the dagger Aglub does not go as planned, it does not succeed, and it does not accomplish what Sauron wanted it to accomplish, then Sauron is the one who is demoted, and Gothmog is the one who rises and then takes command for the dagger Bragalak. But I don't... I, 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 I guess, fundamentally, I don't want Sauron demoted. I don't want Sauron to lose yet. I, I don't want... I want Sauron's... Campaign right. and career to be on the rise until he runs into Luthien and Huon, and right. then he comes crashing down. Right. And yeah. the fall is the more spectacular because right. he's the rising superstar of the bad guys. Still, right. All he does is win. All he does much. is win until he meets a girl and a dog. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm 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 fine with that. I I don't think necessarily having Gothmog in command of that army necessitates that he's there on the front line. I, I again, when we say, front I understand line, your, I understand. Ball, but if he's in command, Balrogs are going to be in combat. I can't see any reason against it. I mean, in the, in the satirical version of episode nine, um, uh, which I enjoyed, uh, we had elves making fun of the Balrogs running away. Um, in the, in, in the version where the Balrogs don't go, I would have the elves and Sauron both making rich fun of the of the Balrogs for not. I mean, they were being accused of cowardice yeah. for running away. How much more cowardly is it for them not even to dare well, to go? I'll, I'll tell you that it's their it, retreat can be handled so that be. it doesn't look like cowardice. In fact, I think uh, their retreat could be handled in a way which makes them actually look pretty freaking terrifying if we do it right. Um, l- l- let me just tell you briefly what my view of a Balrog retreat would look like. Okay, uh-huh. my view of a Balrog retreat is they they see that the orcs are going to lose. Right, they see that the battle is lost. So they turn and they cut their way through their own troops. They, they they leave and they show complete pitilessness and ruthlessness, cutting through both their own troops and the elves uh, and retreating so that we see their abs. They don't care about the orcs. We can see their absolute mercilessness um, and their both willingness and ability to stomp on everybody who gets in there because they say, well, OK, so this isn't. Um, uh, this is, uh, you know, this battle isn't working out. We are withdrawing and they leave and they throw the rest of the orcs into the and they force, they whip the rest of the orcs into the battle to attack. The, so the, the elves can't pursue them um, because the 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 uh, the Balrogs first cut their way out of the battle and then drive all of their reserves up because they don't care if all the orcs die. Right. And they and they, so and they, they wouldn't have and a problem they, using the orcs to make trial of their enemy's strength. So that they could then prepare for their next big battle that they're it's, planning to have. There's no trial. They 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 lost. I mean, they're they're going to lose the battle, right? They lost the battle, but they don't have to run like physically run away. They don't have to show cowardice at all. What they show is like ruthlessness, complete ruthlessness of command. They see. They're smart enough to see this battle is lost. We've lost this battle, so yeah. we're leaving, and we're leaving, and in leaving, we are going to without a hint of conscience or concern, throw the rest of our troops, uh, leave the rest of our troops to die, uh, and throw them all into a battle which we know they can't win because we're leaving, 
right? And so in order to cover our retreat, we're going to, so we're, we're, we're going to withdraw and go back to Angband. Um, and we're going to leave, we're going to force really all of the orcs to die. Cause hopefully maybe even they'll kill some elves, whatever, but it's fine. Whatever. We lost the battle today. We're leaving. Um, but, um, but again, they're, they're not like running, uh, like holding their skirts as they as they go off the battlefield, we certainly do not have to depict it that way. They could look really intimidating uh, leaving and and really ruthless and merciless uh, as they depart. Um, so yeah, I, I don't I don't think that them retreating is any kind of a, of of a necessary loss. Whereas them staying back home because they're afraid to expose themselves on the battle line, I don't see how we reconcile. Well, they're not afraid, but they have been commanded to stay home, or Why? they are by whom staying home Why? because of the rivalry with Sauron. But what, then then there and, is, and the reason they're staying home is. Morgoth is playing the long game, planning for the dagger Bragalak, in which he's going to have not only Balrogs, but also Glaurung. So they can hint at there is a secret project going on, and this is not the main attack. This is a test, and we're working on this secret project. Well, they also start the secret project until after the failure of this battle. Right. They wouldn't be starting the secret project yet. It's the, but anyway, yeah, no, I mean, I, and we don't want to show Angband in this episode. So we have to do all this from the elves perspective right. and right. we can't show yeah. the machinations of the enemy in episode nine. If we get something up in episode eight, we could, right. but it, and so the, nine is strictly elves perspective. Nick, I, I, well, I, I, I want to go back to the thing is yeah. Sorry, the scene where we, Rogren being captured in Angband, and that's what I did in both of the scripts, I think, is I had him waking up as a prisoner and just catching on to the tail end of a conversation between Sauron and Gothmog, where, like, you sort of get an idea of what was going on with the command and, like, why the battle lost and their reaction to that, which is, this wasn't a big deal that we lost because we were working on a new project and there's something big coming. And that can either be referring to Glaurung, which is in development, or it can be referring to Min and Morgoth's work with Min because Morgoth knows that he has corrupted some men and they are going to fight for him. Like, he isn't expecting the Yadine to come because they were the ones who were like sort of the rebels and they broke away and that's why they're going to ally themselves with the elves. But Morgoth knows the people of Vorn Ulfang are coming and they will be on his side. So he's expecting to have that's, way that's more certainly and dragons and stuff. So he is not... Yeah, that's certainly a teaser for later, but that doesn't answer the questions about how the battle was planned and operated and who was in charge, which needed to be clear on screen during the battle. Yes. Like, and, you can have a surprise at the end for a teaser of what to look forward to next, yes. but that doesn't describe, that doesn't answer the battle questions. And I certainly agree that Morgoth's perspective is like, he's not like demoralized by the Dagor Aglareb, right? Because he does, Rihanna, as you say, he has the longer view. Um, from Morgoth's perspective, the attack by Gothmog would be, you know, in the context of his big plans, this is a limited defensive to achieve a limited, uh, a limited objective, right? Um, which would have been good, which had a, a, a serious chance of succeeding, as we, again, we show in the episode, right? There, I mean, there are t- if, if things didn't go well, if Thanorns don't show up, et cetera, et cetera, then, then the good guys could have lost. Um, so it has a reasonable chance of succeeding. If it succeeds, excellent. 
then it makes his future plans that much easier, right? If they have driven a wedge between the uh, the, the 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 elves there, right? But if it doesn't succeed, no big deal, right? And it's very small risk uh, for him to 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 let it happen, right? And when it doesn't work. He's okay because he does have... And Morgoth's okay because he does have bigger plans. Gothmog is going to come back with egg on his face. He doesn't look like a coward, but he does look a little bit like a fool, especially to Sauron. And that seems to me fine. Desirable, in fact. Um, He is... uh, We don't want to undermine Gothmog too badly, but again... I kind of want Sauron to win. I want Sauron to be in the Ascendant. So having the two of them, you know, both attempting something in their own idioms, right? Uh, And, uh, you know, Sauron with his devious, uh, you know, capture plan uh, and stuff and espionage and uh, and Morgoth with, or sorry, uh, Gothmog rather, uh, with his uh, uh, his sledgehammer. Um, You know, they've both attempted something Gothmog's, it's not like it was a, okay, it was mostly a total failure. Um, if he succeeds in killing somebody important, it's not a complete loss. But anyway, that's okay. Um, so he, uh, but, 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 but whatever. He, he loses, he comes up second best, and Sauron ends up looking even better and strong, and, you know, and is, is has taken a strong lead in the rivalry against Gothmog. Rivalry is still there, but he is clearly in the lead now. That seems to me like a desirable place for us to kind of come to in Bad Guy Headquarters at the end of the season. I want to... Nick, I'm going to come back to the thing that you said before about, like, trying to avoid hyperbole, and I I, I don't want... I agree with that, and I don't want to sound like... I, I don't want to be too hyperbolic. I know that's kind of a uh, vice of mine in general when I'm arguing about something. Um... Uh, as my wife has pointed out on more than one occasion. So, uh, in the last 20 years. Uh, um, so... I'm not saying I I know. I was pointing out your flaws. (laughs) I know. Possible. Perfect fairness and accuracy. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, um, the um, uh, it's certainly. I mean, in neither case, if the if the Balrogs stay home or if the Balrogs uh, come into the battle and and withdraw from it at the end, um, in neither case do they like. In neither case are they stuck merely looking like cowards. Like to say they're going to look like cowards is hyperbole in either in either case. Um, yes. Either side has a risk. Like th- there's risk that has to be managed of how the Balrogs are going to come come across. And to me, I think I don't see any gain to the Balrogs, any potential gain. There's a risk in both cases. If they're there, it there's there there are two gains that I see from that. First, it makes the battle much more threatening, and the 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 loss of the you know the 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 the, the chance of the orc army winning seem greater. That's one gain of the Balrogs being there. The second gain is that I do think again that their withdrawal can be managed in a way which makes them look like not the greatest battle commanders in the world. But I'm fine with that conclusion because it's kind of true. Uh, and, but also, which, but which still makes them look powerful and merciless and totally ruthless, which also doesn't seem to me, seems to me to, uh, we can build, we, we have an opportunity to do character development for them, to show what they're capable of, not just as thugs, um, but like in their characters, right? In their, uh, in, in what they're willing to do. So, 
progress, pro- some interesting progress could be made in the depiction of the Balrogs in that way. So again, a potential gain. It could not come off well. Of course, we could fail. But I think there are potential gains. I, I can't see anything like the same potential gains in leaving the Balrogs at home. I don't see what we gain. Um, uh, either in the depiction of the Balrogs themselves, because again, it seems to me only a weakness that needs to be managed. We have to find a good enough excuse for them to have stayed at home and not participated in the battle. And maybe we can. I'm sure we probably could come up with one. But again, that's that's not a positive gain. It's just a management of potential loss, right? I don't see anything positive that comes from their being left behind. Um, other than, and, and, and the only result, again, is if we put the attack on Sauron, then it weakens Sauron, which is feels to me premature. I don't want to weaken Sauron yet. I don't want to have him lose. I want to have, if anyone's going to lose, again, Gothmog's my patsy. Uh, if somebody's going to end up looking bad, I want it to be Gothmog uh, in, uh, in this whole in this whole exchange. Um, so, uh, anyway, so that's, and I think that was, and, and as far as the elves are concerned, again, if there are only two, uh, if, if there are no Balrogs there, if Balrogs are there, then we don't need to go very far for an explanation of why there is a serious chance that, the armies of Fingolfin, Fingon, Angrod, Ignor, and Finrod are all going to be defeated. Um, if the Balrogs are not there, the only explanation would be absolutely overwhelming numbers. Um, and I don't know that we necessarily want to play that. That's, that is as much a deviation from the text as sending Balrogs. Right, the numbers of the orcs weren't overwhelming. It was a trial, right? Well, they um, weren't over, so overwhelming as to overwhelm succeed. the entire <laughs> succeed in overwhelming like, the entire combined might of <laughs> right. the, of the Noldor, who also happened to catch them in a pretty bad spot, strategically speaking. So there's that. But that said, um, and. and I think that one of the things, my biggest concerns rolling into this was that the Balrogs are either so effective that they have to, like, the, 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 my biggest problem is they're, they're too effective. That they're so effective okay. ah, that they could get, that ah, they could, yeah. that they're w- so much more effective than everybody else around them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that they can get isolated and they know they can be killed. Because ah, they've had okay. their people yes. killed. This is exactly the next thing I wanted to talk about. Morgoth knows that they can be killed. We and don't. the elves probably do. Do they? Well, yeah, because if the if the Valar told them about the War of the Powers. But no <laughs> elves killed anybody then. I mean, it's one thing to say Tolkis can kill somebody, and it's another thing to say that you can kill somebody if you're an elf. Right. Right. So, right. No, but we don't. Right. It, so, the viewers don't know if the elves that, can kill a Balrog. Exactly. The viewers have no idea elves, that Balrogs can die. Well, the, the viewers have no idea that elves, elves can kill, can Balrogs. kill Balrogs. Right. 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 And and that's exactly. that's fair. That's but, fair. See, oh, ah, exact. We need to establish that, though. See, that's that's another potential gain. This is why I think again we gain something else by having the Balrogs retreat. Right? Is with, again, they don't have to look bad in doing it, but it does plant a seed, right, for the viewers. Like, hey, like, could they? Like, are they not indestructible? 
because like we're going to destruct them like there were that that's going to happen right and we have yet have we ever shown you know Balrog's retreat from the field yeah have no have we ever shown anyone like of higher than elven stature being killed by an elf i don't think we have like like do we, as, as elves haven't uh, done a lot of killing. They haven't done a lot of killing yet uh, at, at all, right? But yeah, vampires and, were- vampires and werewolves. They have. Killed. Yes, we yeah. have seen them shoot Which down is, some of the vampires. That's not the same. But no, it's not the same because they're half animals. I mean, they're, they're, there's a quest. There's a real question as to whether the werewolves are above or below elves on the great chain of being. Right. You know, um, that's that's fair. But so, but but Balrogs okay, but are a different story here. That Balrogs might possibly be able to be killed by elves because they're retreating. I really don't think that fits with the purpose of the Dagger Agarab because we want to make the Dagger Agarab a big, exciting battle because it's it towards the end of the yeah. season just... here and it should be exciting. But yeah. we want to make sure that when we show the Dagger Bragalak, it is much, much, much worse. And the dagger Aglub is supposed to make the elves overconfident. So mm-hmm. they shouldn't see Balrogs on the field. They should just see a lot of orcs that they can wipe away really easily. They should think that they can face whatever Angband can throw at them. But they, they but haven't they faced everything. Know they know that, that it can throw Balrogs at them. <laughs> exactly. Is the Feanorians have fought the Balrogs before. So and that's why they're going to be no. So they're going to be less uh, overconfident because they're going to be like because this was just a trial. No, because because they're all going to say like, well, on the one hand, we won that battle, but on the other hand, it was only orcs, right? Like we know. I mean, again, Mithras is going to be like, dude, trust me, they did not bring their A game to that battle, so don't get too overconfident, right? Because they know, like, there there, there weren't even Balrogs on the field. I- Right? And, and that's what I have him doing personally... in the version where there are no Balrogs. Is Mythos is absolutely like there are Balrogs. Don't forget about the Balrogs. In which case, they're um, not going to be overconfident. I, I just want to remind everybody that we ha- th- it, this would not be the first time that we've seen Balrogs retreat, retreat from the from field the of field battle, battle and retreat from the face of the Calaquenny. So it's not like it's not like we don't already we haven't already planted this seed. Okay. So I, I'm I'm just throwing that out there. It's it's not like we haven't it, already suggested like a, that a unique, the elves could threaten the Balrogs in in significant enough numbers. But again, I well, totally you know agree that the do. the outcome of this battle does should be overconfidence by the Noldor, and that overconfidence is only going to be increased if the Balrogs were there and they still won. If the Balrogs weren't there. They're not going to be overconfident. They're going to be, I mean, there might be some, but if they are overconfident as a result of just beating a bunch of the losers, uh, the literally the lowest uh, 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 cannon fodder that Angband has to throw out there, they're fools if they are become overconfident. I don't want them to be fools. I want them to be reasonably overconfident. And defeating an army led by Balrogs could very plausibly lead to reasonable overconfidence. One of the characters who needs to be overconfident next season is Fingolfin. Yes. And we cannot have Fingolfin be an idiot. That's we correct. cannot have Fingolfin. And uh, yes, if he is, if he comes away from a, a, a battle in which they defeat only orcs with like super confidence that they can face anything that Angband throws at them, then he's a fool. I mean, that that's foolish. That would be, especially when 
he's never met Balrogs before. Fingolfin hasn't. If they don't come out now, he will never have seen them. Um, he saw um, Angband's forces when the sun rose, which means he saw trolls okay. turn to stone in the sun. Okay. I, I don't recall if we had Balrogs. If we had Balrogs then, yeah, or not. Um, yeah. Um, but... Um, so how about this? Yeah. How about we have... The Balogs can be out there, they can be fighting, but they will not be at the front lines. Now, there's precedent for this. Well, it's not really precedent. It happens after, but in the Nyarnath Anordiad, Morgoth sends out all his orcs first, and then he sends out Glaurung, and then he sends out the Balogs. That's why the Balogs are the ones fighting people in. That's why near the end of the battle, Fingon gets killed by the Balogs, because the Balogs come out at the end after the Noldor have, like, broken up to the gates of Angman, then Morgoth sends out the Balogs. So what if we have... We sort of do the two forces like we have in the episode already. And we have the first force is just orcs. And the second force is a bunch of orcs in the front and some Balogs in the back. So when it really, really looks bad for the elves in the battle, the moment they get the news Turgon isn't coming, the moment they get the news that the Feanorians aren't coming, Mm -hmm. they see the Balogs on the horizon. And presumably you can see those guys from pretty far off because they're like, on fire and they're much bigger than the orcs <laughs> and then the when we have the feanorians show up with them not expecting them to show up and the Balogs won't expect them to show up because like sauron will have assured them that like ethelos took care of the messenger mm-hmm. and the feanorians won't be coming but they show up anyway that's when the Balogs treat because we've shown the Balogs treating from the feanorians before because that was what they did when feanor died is the Sons of Feanor came down and they scared all the Balogs away so they could get their dad out and he could just collapse and ash like he does. And then we could also be setting up why Morgoth wants to divide the houses of the Noldor and then Yernath and Nordiad because he goes through all this like subterfuge and machinations to keep Mythos from meeting up and uniting with Fingon. So if we establish that the Feanorians, their armies are a threat to the Balogs, and the Balogs perceive the Feanorians as a threat, which is why they retreat from them in the Dagger Aglarab, then that's why Morgoth wants the When they weren't supposed to be there at all. Balogs in the Nyrnaith. Like, Sauron told us there wouldn't be any Feanorians here. I... I, eh. Okay, well, this brings up a separate question that I have, but let me put the separate question aside for a second. Um... I am okay. I mean, I'm more than okay. It seems to me perfectly logical that Balrogs, an army of orcs with a few Balrogs with them, the Balrogs would primarily be using their flaming whips to whip the orcs on into battle from behind. That seems to me... I, I, I don't think Balrogs are particularly lead-by-example types of people, right? Um, so I have no problem with them being primarily... Unless it's fun. Unless it's fun, right? I have, I have, I have, I have no problem with the Balrogs being primarily slave drivers and and not champions. However, um, I again, I think that having, I don't see, objectively speaking, any good reason to not have the to. To have the Balrogs in the battle and never engaging in the battle. Like, why? Why should we do that? Because the only... they've come out last. And but, like, but, they but, were... but, but why? Why? So, I mean, setting the Nyrnaith or aside for a while, because I'm not sure that we're not going to want to... I mean, 
Um, on the one hand, the near knife, the near knife Arnoidiad is one of the most detailed tactical descriptions of a battle that we have in Tolkien's published primary published works. Um, his description of the battle at the Fords of Eisen is a great deal more, by far the most, and also the disaster of the Gladden Fields. Both of those pieces from uh, Unfinished Tales are far more tactically detailed. But the 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 near knife Arnoidiad is one of the most one of the only places in his published texts where Tolkien actually gives us tactical details of the battlefield. And they're fairly slim. And the tactics that he gives them are super simple. Um, really, really, from a military history standpoint, very rudimentary. All of this is to say, and I've had this conversation lots of times with lots of people, Tolkien's works do not demonstrate a very great interest on his part in military tactics. He just doesn't spend much time. Or rather, I would say his stories are not... I won't say about him. His stories do not show much interest in the exact tactics of battles. Um, So I'm not going to worry too much about the tactics as they're described in the Near Nith Ornoidiad because I am not at all... No, let me say that more forcefully. I feel fairly certain that we're going to want to monkey with that a little bit when we get there. Um... Uh, so I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not persuaded by the near North Arnoidiad as a template here, um, because what we are faced with is the reality of depicting on screen a battle in which the Balrogs are there but never do anything other than whip on the orcs. Um, which again, it's possible. I'm not saying it's impossible. They would certainly be whipping on the orcs. But again, what do we well, gain? Well, they're not there for the full battle. And Why not? What, the way what do want we them gain to by having them not? At the yeah, very the end, at the moment when it seems that all hope is lost and we don't have anyone coming, that's when we see the Balrogs. The Balrogs are going to start attacking them. Yes, and that effect would be even more further amplified if at that moment the Balrogs <laughs> come in and start chucking elves all over the place. If they actually attacked. <laughs> exactly, the, yes. Because so, the, the, the real issue is that if we put... Balrogs in a battle situation and then don't let them do anything, they look kind yeah. of useless. Yeah. And yes. we could not have them at all, or we could use them in the battle, but to have them there and then not use them That's what I is going to disappoint the viewer I don't, more I don't than see anything. How we get, it, yeah, it, it if, feels to me if like. Mugs, if it's got mugs on stage, alone, it's I feel fired. less like that's a problem. Agreed. But, but it, I mean, Here's the thing. Like, ultimately, I feel like what we've constructed, which I guess we'll get into next time, works. Um, it addresses some of the feelings of dread that I had mm-hmm. when when I was listening to the original discussion. <laughs> because what was being this – and because you, you may remember, I kept asking you questions like, all right, come on. Like, you have to give me something here. I need to know – how you're seeing this working because the way that you're describing it makes zero sense to me whatsoever. Right. I get it. Um, excuse me. And, um, and so it addresses some of those things while still maintaining the things that nobody likes. Um, right. Right. So like, I like what we've created in the outline is something that I can live with. Um, I I still I still disagree. I'm not convinced. Some might say that it was that it's necessary to have the bal- to have a cadre of Balrogs active in the battle. I wouldn't say it's necessary. 
I just think that the gains outweigh the losses. And rather, the gains of that outweigh by far the gains of leaving the Balrogs home. And, and I see, I definitely see your case for that. Like, I, I, I'm not going to mm-hmm. deny that that there are certainly benefits. Um, I think that a lot of the same effects can be created in other ways, but that's it, like ultimately, I think that what we have is is usable. So here's one other thing that I would add. Um, one other thing that I would add. I know, Rhiannon, I know that you you have been waging a long-term campaign. To, you've, been, you've, been, you've been campaigning harder to save Angrod even than Nick did to save the lamps uh, in, in season one. Um, and one thing that I will say is that my opinion on the death of Angrod has been changed to a certain extent by buy your scripts. Um, and I'll tell you the extent to which it's been changed. I still would have no problem killing him off. I still think it would be, I, I still, I, I'm still kind of in love with the idea, a little bit, a little bit in love with the idea of Ordreth being left an orphan. Um, I mean, he's going to be eventually anyway, but I mean here, like losing both his father and mother in one swoop, uh, is, um, is, is something I still kind of like that idea. However, um, the reason we nominated Angrod for death in the first place is that it came up from the Balrogs, right? We, we were going to have Balrogs in the battle, and so we needed somebody to die. Uh, and you know, we, we, we needed a named person that we know to die because I, I still think it's a sensible rule when Balrogs are in battle, a named person dies. Um, you know, I'm not saying we need necessarily 100% bind ourselves to that rule if we decide we want to deviate from it at some point. But again, I think it's fine. Um, that's why Angrod was nominated, because I, of all of the people, I mean, you look at everybody named on this map, right? Everybody else has jobs they have to do in the future. Um, uh, 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 he, Angrod, is the only one who does not have a specific ju- the, te- that the, te- the the Silmarillion text, I mean uh, does not call for him to do anything F- Fingon and Fingolfin have other dates, obviously right, they need, they're going to be dying in other times and other places, Turgon, obviously right, uh, even most of the Feanorians, um, and Finrod certainly, he still hasn't even met Baron or Bara here yet um uh, Ignor is uh, has a, a romantic entanglement to get involved in next season, which is going to be super awesome. Um, Angrod is obviously our most disposable of our named characters, but here is the way. Here is the way in which my perspective on this has been changed by reading the script. We're losing Ethelos, one way or the other, right? Angrod dying or Angrod living, Ethelos is dying in this episode. Like that's definitely happening, right? Um, when we were planning, Evelos was mostly a name to me. I mean, she was like a, a, a kind of a concept that we, you know, that, that we'd been talking about. I mean, when we were just like thinking of like who, you know, <clears throat> she was, she was in the list of the different elf capture scenarios that we were first coming up with. That's what Evelos was to me at that point. Right. What you guys have done with her and Rihanna, especially what, how you have developed her character throughout this season, um, and especially since episode six, but but certainly before that, 
Ethelos is as major a character in this show, for viewers of the show, Ethelos is as major a character as Angrod, more in some ways. Well, maybe not more, but at least as much, right? She's at least as important a character by this point, especially with the, ref- the, the you know, the, the reflections from Oradreth in, the, in episode eight and everything else and all that beautiful stuff about, you know, the crossing of the Helcaraxa with her and, and of course seeing her as the, you know, as the, uh, uh, the Herald of Angrod and seeing her training the armies and I mean, everything else. Like she's, she's a huge character. Her death would be enough for me. I mean, if, if... not by Balrog. She has to be killed by Sauron because she is Sauron's pet project. Ah. He has been working on her okay. the whole time. And, and you don't think Gothmog wants to smash Sauron's pre- right. pet project? Oh. Yeah. No, but you see, we have Agnor breaking his sword, fighting the whatever kills Balrog. And Choose. what? Balrogs or Angrod? Balrogs or Angrad, make a choice. <laughs> well, so but he, here, he, he, here. This because brings me back to the Agnes question I didn't get become to. Narsil. and so right. if the sword that becomes Narsil is broken in the fighting of Sauron at the moment when Sauron gets named, and it is tied to Sauron. I love the naming of Sauron, by the way. Uh, but hang on a second. So let's 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 um, because I have a question. Whose hand? is inside Evelos's sock puppet? Is it Sauron? I thought it was Morgoth. Oh, no, so did, at, Morgoth did the spell, definitely. Yeah. Morgoth but does then, the spell. Does he delegate to Sauron? I mean, I agree. She's been his project. Yeah, that's why I'm but in the script, Morgoth kind of took Sauron over the project. The like, even in episode eight, uh, Morgoth is the one he's like, what have they been hiding? And then Sauron is the one who issues the next command to Athelos. So like at that moment, Morgoth like tells her to do one thing, and then Sauron is the one who's directing her. Yeah. So um, like the, the power is coming from Morgoth, but the commands are coming from Sauron. See. And I can make that more how? clear if it needs to be. How? That was my intent. How? How is he? See, Morgoth's in her head. Right. I mean, from that moment when he lays the whammy on her, Morgoth's in her head. I mean, I didn't bat an eye when Sauron gave her a command and she responded because, I mean, she Morgoth's in her head. Morgoth's also standing right there. Right. So that she was pretty tractable at that point seemed to me I I didn't have any problem with that at all. But that. Sauron would somehow be remotely inserted into her head after the fact. I, I, I totally was assuming, and it seems to me to make most sense that it's Morgoth. Morgoth has, again, this is part of the reason that I was seeing the parallel with how Morgoth comes home and takes over the Orc project, and then he comes home and takes over the Ethelos project. Um, and maybe Sauron, as you know, Maria, as you were arguing, and Nick, I think as you were arguing too, Sauron's more into this one, right? Because on the one hand, yeah, Morgoth is kind of like taken over his pet project. But on the other hand, he's like, but I'm not going to pretend that wasn't awesome because that was awesome. Right. Right. Uh, and I kind of want in on that action. Come to think of it. Right. Um, but uh, but but Morgoth is like, I, I think if I mean, you know, we talked about Ethelos not driving the bus and we didn't talk at the time about oh. who the bus driver was. But um I think I think Morgoth is the bus driver. With, yeah. um, with Anil later on, we'll have Sauron doing his version of 
mesmerization or whatever. Right, right. So um, have him do so, his like junior league version of mm-hmm. of the of the spell yeah. of so, with this the spell of fairly deep so, but not quite bottomless dread. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but in this case, it, yeah. it should still be Morgoth, and it's Morgoth's will. I and, think it is Morgoth's will. I mean, it seems sensible that it would be Morgoth's will in this way. But clearly, the capture of Edelos was a Sauron project. Was a Sauron thing. And, right. and, and Angrod and Ignor, but neither one of them is going to know this, right? They're not going to tell. I mean, Angrod is totally going to blame, would, would totally blame Sauron? Would he, would, would, or would he know? He doesn't know. Shoot, I forgot. He doesn't know. He had no idea What's what happened. What's that? Who, who doesn't know? Angrod. No Angrod doesn't know what happened to Edelos. Nobody in knows what happened to Edelos, no. so he's yeah. not going to know yes. to blame Sauron. Right, right. Well, what he, yeah, unless as as uh, uh, Rihanna suggests, Sauron's there. But... Sorry, Nick. Go yeah. ahead. No, no, no. If if we went with Rihanna's idea of Sauron being, being there, there, yeah, that that could come up. Yeah, I, and switching to Angrod when he kills Edelos. I'm not going to pretend that I didn't like that scene because I totally did. I really liked that scene. I, I mean, and the thing with the eclipse, the thing with the and eclipse, her finally seeing it. the sun. That loved is Varga's answer to her prayer to loved protect it. her husband because she prayed in episode six mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. would be safe wherever he was, and like Varga didn't answer. Clouds covered the stars, so like the light wasn't helping her. But here. When Athelos is dying, in the moment of her death, her prayer is answered and Engrod is saved. I loved it. I loved that scene. I loved it. Um, my, and I also loved, separately, the naming of Sauron. Um, mm. But I, I think I'm wanting to postpone the naming of Sauron because, again, I can't... I, I don't want Sauron to be there. I, I can't see how Sauron can be there in the battle. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I don't see Sauron being present in the battle. And if he's not present, I don't know how anyone would blame, would know to blame. I mean, he's to blame, but I don't know how anyone would know to blame him. Um, for a while. Also, we've, we've, we've also named Sauron, Sauron His forces are fighting his vampires are fighting, his werewolves are fighting. So it would make sense. Wait, 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 wait. wait. I I have it. I have a solution. I have a solution. Okay. 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 Who? Sauron's already been named Sauron by somebody. Gothmog. Anybody remember? Yes. Gothmog. Yes. Yes. If, if Gothmog gets a hold of Edelos and says that, and says Ah, Sauron's pet before he crushes her. And Angrod hears it. Uh-huh. Right? At uh-huh. least the name Then Sauron he knows. Rock, he knows. Right? They don't necessarily know, like, they don't know who Myron is, but that's when the elves first find out about Sauron. It's the first time they hear of him. And they know that Sauron had something to do with Edelos. What, uh, we... We had Sauron directly interact with the entire camp of Feanor. Um, yes, did we, yes, that's did true. But they, he was false name. I he I think he probably would have named himself Myron at the time. I I don't see yeah. him naming himself or Sauron. Giving himself some other name. Yeah. 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 Um, but okay. So separately, okay. So I like bo- both of 
the Ethelos death scenes I like. I like the one that Rhiannon wrote with Hangrod and the, and the Eclipse. I like... The, I totally agree. Having Gothmog kill Ethelos as the named character that gets killed by Balrogs in this scene works for me. She's she's totally qualifies as a major character at this point to be killed by the Balrog. Um, and I completely agree with you, Marie. This was our secret trump card, by the way. For Gothmog to be saying, okay, uh, you know, yeah, like he would kill her out of spite because she was Sauron's pet project, right? Um, that makes complete sense. That that and 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 Nick has you suggested for him to say that, um, and it to be overheard so that they would know. Again, I agree. I think that that works. Is there a way to kind of marry these things together in some way? Um, well, Sarwan likes to do things personally. He likes going in and being involved with the elves. So I think it would definitely be possible for him to want to go down and deal with the elves himself. He wouldn't mind going out on the battlefield and facing them. He wouldn't want to fight them the whole time, but he would want to accomplish his one task, which in this case is killing Ethelos. I don't think he would want to... But why would would he want to kill her? That's the thing. He plans that. Yeah, she's useful. And she's a tool, so she either can break or not, but the... The idea of having her as a inserted spy is to make use of her long term. To have the villains kill her in the scene requires someone who would spitefully do that anyway, even though she's useful, which you know a Balrog would do. Because even even if she breaks enough to to reveal Ang- to Angrod what she's done, like the person to kill isn't her. The person to kill is Angrod, right? Like if Angrod's the witness, like that would. Be the person he's the that, one that would want to get rid for. Yes, yes, right. Exactly. Because presumably they can regain control of Edelas and and make use of her in the future. If the only yeah. witness is dead, if Sar- if Sauron were to be there and were to witness, yeah, exactly. So he sees Edelas like overcome the spell enough to confess. His reaction, yeah, his reaction is okay. Let's let's kill Angrod. Uh, let's kill the witness and let's re- let's we gotta refresh the spell bottomless tread, right? Because it found a bottom apparently. So we need to, we need to reassess. Um, but he would also want to torment Angrod. Like the whole thing that I have him doing where he switches his face to Angrod's mm-hmm, face mm-hmm. in view of both Ethelos and Angrod is purely psychological torture for Angrod. Yep. So like he is, he is at this point revealing that he can look like anyone, so you can't trust anyone. You can't trust the prisoners who have escaped, and you can't trust anyone because they could be Sauron in right. disguise. And that's what he wants to do, is he wants to sow that discord among the elves. He wants them to not trust each other and not trust the prisoners that escape from Angband. But I think Edelwaz's betrayal is going to accomplish that. And he would like the prisoners to get trusted at first so that he can put all the sleeper agents out there Right. And accomplish stuff, and then have the distrust build. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, again, I do think it's. Um, I mean, again, I don't. I don't disagree as a whole. I, I mean, and and again, and I really like this. This is this is the the the, the real struggle that I have uh, here. Is again, I really like the scene that you wrote as it's depicted. Um, I, I think it's. I think it's a. It's a. It's it's a wonderful scene. 
Um, yeah. But like the larger plot context of it is what I is what I disagree with. I don't I don't see Sauron being on the battlefield. I don't see any. I I can I can I can give like. I could start listing a bunch of reasons for him not to be on the battlefield, and I can't think of very many good reasons for him to be there. Um, and I, th- yeah, yeah, uh, he's going to have other opportunities to follow up to 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 continue his his work. Um, if what we see here is Gothmog smashing his work, that seems to me. Um, and again, that solidif- helps to further solidify right. The rivalry. the rivalry, and if anything, yeah. it almost allows Gothmog to recoup something from the battle, right? Like, okay, his idea, right? His smash offensive didn't pan out, so he goes back to Angband with egg on his face, to you know, uh, and that's true, and he's 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 sort of lower than Sauron, but at least he has something he can be like, yeah, well. At least I smashed his little pawn, right? At least I, you know, I showed how useless that was. You know, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he can comfort himself that he accomplished something, right? That he, he stuck it to Sauron. It, it kind of makes me think of a line from uh, the 13th Warrior, which I, I, I know you said you hadn't watched. I still haven't. Still on my list, but I still haven't gotten to it. <laughs> anyway, so the line is, is that any fool can calculate strength. Right. The idea being that the the main characters are sending a message to one of their antagonists that the you know, just because something is stronger doesn't mean that it's better. Right. Right. Um, And I feel like that message is totally lost on Gothmog. Right. Goth in Gothmog's mind when he crushes Edelas is that because that tool was so weak it was useless mm-hmm. like he is, he it's he's it totally passes by him the yes. value yes of yes of this because stre- he is he is like the avatar of the strength doctrine gothmog is. right absolutely yes. yeah yes. yeah 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 um that strength doctrine which of course is one of the things which attracted myron to Melkor in the first place, right. right? He appreciated Melkor's strength. He admired his strength and his willingness to exert that strength rather than right. withholding that. The, the he knows Manway has strength, but Manway doesn't use it, right? Right. Um, and he admired that strength. And but like when it's just the strength, right? When it's right. just the thug power, he you know is it, yeah we see him we see him at odds with it in in Gothmog. Right. Um, right. anyway, so, um, so yes, I, again, you know, the, one of the primary things that I would offer there at the end is that I am, I, I am willing to say in the context of the story, as you guys have developed it, the death of Angrod feels like overkill. Like it right. could be overkill. Like it, it, it's not needed. It's not needed within this, um, in this like new world in which Ethelod Ethelos is almost as great a character, you know, as, as significant right. a character as Angrod is. Um, uh, in fact, more so in, in, in several dimensions, she's a bigger character than Angrod by this time of the season because we know her better. Angrod is we're emotionally more connected to much her. more, much more. Um, and Angrod almost indirectly. So, right. Um, yeah. um, we connect you know, we to these characters. We were with Angrod 
for a full episode, then it turned out it wasn't him. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. So we don't oh, know. Yeah. 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 We think yeah. we know Angrod and we don't. Right. Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah. So I can tell you that when we were discussing this episode, it actually came up that at the end of the day, that if Edelas's death was cool enough, like if we fought tooth and nail <laughs> all the way up to the point, but if Edelas's death was cool enough that you might as a as a as a consolation prize. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not I really just like intended we, as a consolation prize it's i definitely I, feel like we just, they're angry at the losses enough pathos for this episode it's enough pathos yeah no exactly it is it is it is not a consolation prize it is an acknowledgement of your achievement with ethelos absolutely absolutely <laughs> it, is is brie around i don't i don't want to get yelled at for fridging again <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's you like know, this. actually created a lot of problems when we were working out the wedding of Gladriel and Caliborn because oh Gladriel needs someone to stand in as her mother, and like all her female relatives are dead. Right, it's true, it's true. Yeah, no, I mean, it's funny. If any, if anything, it's getting to the point where we would have been fridging Angrod for Ethelos's sake. You know, I mean, it's like, it's yeah, I mean, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, um, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Again, I still don't, I mean, you know, in my heart of hearts, I will still confess that I think I see a better net gain from Angrod's death than his life at this point. Um, but it's fine. I mean, hey, you guys like did awesome things with Ethelos. I'm sure you can make excellent use of the like, you know, um, parole that Angrod <laughs> been given. I, mean, I just I, want him to still die gonna get rid of him. Brag on like he's supposed to. He can choke on a marshmallow or something. I don't care. He just needs so to I, die. I, I just, I, 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 you know, I'm, for me, I'm much more willing to, I mean, Tolkien tends to kill off the main Silmarillion characters kind of in waves often, at least the minor yeah. ones, right? I mean, the yeah. big ones like Fingolfin and Turgon and Finrod, yeah. you know, they all get their big, like, important deaths, you know, uh, dra- uh, dramatic moments. But like Angrod and Ignor are just like killed off as a pair. Like they're, they're just like a set. Yeah, and, and we can make that a thing. Like they can both both go down in battle hey, together. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, we can make that awesome. No question. We can. I'm just yeah. saying that's the reason why I'm not attached to making all the deaths happen where they happen, because Tolkien tends to throw away the lives of the lesser characters in bunches. And I don't think that we need to be compelled to, to bunch them in the same way Um, because we are building each one of these characters into much more than Tolkien made of them because of the kind of story he was writing. um, I would, I I would have no problem at all making each one a separate spotlight rather than. I'm just glad that you didn't just try to kill off Amros again. Well, you know, that's always the fallback, right? If ever we need somebody to die, there's always Amras. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, except this time, because I think, uh, I honestly think you just, just didn't think of him. Yeah. He, I mean, well, he's not really there. He's too fringe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, too, too, too fringe to the action here. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. No, sure. he's, he's, sure. he is, he is kind of like, uh, well, I don't know, somewhere between like a, a Star Trek red shirt and Kenny from yeah. South Park, I guess. But yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I. All right. It's all good. Well, 
I think we can get into the particulars. Yeah, we, we can go over some of the particulars. And of course, the especially morning. the B plot with Turgon. I'd, lo- I'd love to talk about that a little more, which we didn't get to. Uh-huh. But we can yeah. we can roll that in at the beginning of next time and, and, and then move on to hopefully 10 and 11 as well next time. This is the, I mean, I, I always knew this was going to be the big debate. So I don't I don't regret yeah, going yeah. long. And I'm also really glad for the long discussion we had of, for, of the spell of Bottomless Dread um, yeah, yeah. Uh, earlier on. Um, so yeah. anyway, yeah. So the consensus is you definitely want Gothmog to be the brains behind this battle, and you definitely want Balrogs to be, yeah, well, or lack of brains, <laughs> uh, and you de- definitely would like Balrogs to be fighting in this battle in some capacity. They don't and... have to be on the front lines. They right, right, right. Or, be, you know? It's... Right, they don't need to be in every army. Just they don't have to be in every, present. they don't have to be leading every when attack. fighting. Just, I, 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 I agree to it. I, and, you know, Marie, exactly. I was thinking exactly what you said before, that it feels to, like if we have Balrogs there and they never fight, it's like, you know, the gun on stage that's never fired. At least that's how it would feel to me if I were watching it. Um, um, but, uh, right. yeah. So yeah. can you, I'll try to get another episode nine script written in which there are Balrogs present in the battle. I'm still really in favor of Sauron being the one to kill Athlos and son of Angrod. So give me some time to work out possible reasons why he might do that. Like I, I need time to think, like a lot of the things that I bring in to these mm-hmm. scripts are things mm-hmm. that I think of after our script discussions. Sure, and sure. sure. So like, give me some time to think of a way okay. to... Okay. incorporate that and make those things work together and i will have a another episode nine script okay the one thing that i would add to that though is that i i don't think there should be werewolves and vampires in the battle in general because those are sauron's troops and if this is Gothmog's initiative, Sauron's not going to lend him his troops. And anyway, Gothmog would disdain Sauron's troops because Sauron's troops are all like sneaky, weird, weird. You know, Gothmog wants well, and there's not a lot bashing of troops. And they're and but they're we do exactly. have Rogan getting captured and Ainel getting captured, and they are captured by Sauron's troops because Sauron is trying to capture them. But maybe Sauron could be doing something with his troops where he's operating. See, now what that's a Sauron move. If Gothmog is marching off on his army, right, and he's all, and he's over there, uh, Sauron, it, it, it's not a Sauron move for him to, like, join the battle essentially as, like, a subordinate to Gothmog or to try to make Gothmog. No, but it would be a Sauron's move, a Sauron move for him to look for opportunities, right? Because he would probably think exactly what happens with Rog, right? He's probably going to be like, hey, you know what? I mean, uh, I, and I, by the way, I love the fact that um, it's almost Arathel, right? Arathel almost uh, is the one, right, who would have been captured, and Rog's capture is in her place, setting up awesomeness in Gondolin later on. But anyway, really cool. Love that whole thing. But again, this is exactly the Sauron would see potential opportunities here, right? They're probably going to be sending runners. And knowing these Noldor, right, they're, they're not just going to send lackeys, right? One of the captains of the Noldor might well either attempt to come to relieve somebody and expose himself to danger, or might they might send, you know, somebody. I mean, look, like, Turgon sends Ecthelion, too. I mean, they tend, they often do this, and he would probably know that, right? So, so yes, it would absolutely be a Sauron move to be like, let's hang around behind Gothmog's smashy army and see what opportunities arise. 
by. So I'm going to have a squad of werewolves standing by just in case we can kidnap any valuable commodities uh, right along the fringes of this battle as they try to communicate back and forth across Ardgallen. Right. That that is a Sauron. That would be a really good reason for Sauron to be there. For him to be somewhere that's not in the front yet. That's not in the neighborhood. In the, in the neighborhood, but it gets him a step closer. I agree. <laughs> We'd have to see if we could get him up to the lines of the battle, and uh, and I still am going to be if if uh, Goth if you know Balrog doesn't get to smash anybody. I'm going to get a little twitchy though. Still, you know, so it's uh, that is one danger. I mean, the, there is a risk yeah. if we. If we have Sauron kill Ethelos, I might have to repeal the... the <laughs> Thank God I'll kill the Angrod. The, the pardon on Angrod. Or, 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 you know, anyway, we make the Balrog terrifying enough force in this battle, or we make them significant enough, I think we can ignore the Balrog rule in this occasion if we have it. Like, they're obviously something dangerous and something that we should be afraid of. Maybe. Or you know what we can do? We can kill off a named orc that we become attached <laughs> to when he becomes a named character, and that's how I pick him. Nah, that's not how the Balrog rule works. That's not how the Balrog rule works. Yeah, yeah, that's not. But anyway, that's okay. not how the Force works. That's, that's not how the Force <laughs> works. All right. Anyway, so we'll, we'll we will we will we'll we'll. we'll go over some of that stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll look at the new, I'll definitely read the new version of, uh, of episode nine. Um, and we do have, we do have two weeks. So we had two weeks in a row. We've gotten back on schedule. So our next episode, uh, will be, what is it? The 14th now. So it'll be the 28th. No, it won't. Cause that's, that's Thanksgiving the, day. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to uh, be three weeks from now. It's going to be, it's going to be November f- or December 5th, right? December 5th. Right. Okay. It's actually the 15th now. It is. No, it's not. Oh, yeah, technically, whatever. Yeah. December fifth uh, is the date for the uh, next episode. I next session. Yeah. Sorry. This, Sorry. This reminds me of 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 like Saturday night at Mythmoot. You know, yeah. hanging out like the last like three people hanging out around the. Fire. Exactly right. As as uh, as you have seen from the way I normally carry on, I don't consider right. the I, next I, day as beginning until dawn. That's when the day begins. <laughs> So it's still the 14th as far as I'm concerned, whatsoever my calendar might read right now. I I actively resent my phone apps, which roll over to the next day at midnight. I'm like, darn, I still have two hours of my workday left. Don't roll over my calendar yet. Yeah, I I was putting up the episode 13 script uh, technically yesterday, but it felt like it was the day before because I was doing it after midnight. Right, exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, we will let people go. This has been an event, a long but eventful episode. Uh, uh, thank you for the wonderful discussion. I, I certainly want to reiterate Nick's point from earlier on. Um, and again, all of uh, you know the sort of discussion, criticism, disagreements, and everything else is all done in the context of of you know this really fun. Even if at times spirited collaboration that, you know, we have going on here. And I think that what we've been building together as, as you know, most clearly, more clearly than ever for me before, evidenced by um, Rhiannon's wonderful script, um, really producing something which is... Uh, 
uh, which is, uh, you know, cooler than any of us in, by ourselves could have come up with, I think. So uh, it's, uh, it's all... Uh, this is all all really fun, and uh, I'm really glad to have you guys working with us on this. So, okay, but we are going to mercifully let everybody go now. So thanks, everybody, uh, for joining us for this episode, and I will say, as always, thanks for listening, and Godspeed. Godspeed.